Hello and welcome to the Survivor Historians, the only Survivor podcast that generates less body heat than Courtney. As always, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher, and uh, I'll I'll be with you guys as soon as my fire pit gets done. I'm Mike Bloom, and the be- anything better than this podcast is uh, this podcast and some ass. Um, I'm Paul Osselson. Don't expect much from me because I'm going to ride out of the workhorse till the tail falls off because I ain't doing nothing until I have to. <laughs> and we are here to talk about uh, one of the more popular of all the Survivor seasons. A, I dare say one of the seasons that's almost universally beloved. This is Survivor China. We were finally up to season 15. We started uh, about, what, 12, 13 years ago starting uh, talking about season one. And we are now up to the 15th season of Survivor. You know, it's 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 funny, Mario, because... Yeah, you know, some of us were there all the way from this podcast at the beginning. <laughs> Lol, Mike. But like, you know, hey, Lol, Paul. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> goes two ways on that. <laughs> <laughs> lull, 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 lull. But like, uh, you know, we we talked about. You know, you were like, oh, I'll just do a couple seasons. We'll do a couple seasons, and you were like, ah, maybe we'll do the first ten. And I think I think at some point, Mario, you and I had a conversation of, well, we at least got to get to China. You yeah. know, in. in it was just this pipe dream, like way in the future. Like, yeah, one day, maybe in the future, we'll do Survivor. We're here! Survive in China! Let's do are this! Sure, are you sure you weren't just talking about where you want to bring your new startup business? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, this is, of all the seasons, this is the one that has the most lead in it. So it's great. That <laughs> makes children sick. Well, there's a lot of talk about Flint in these first couple episodes, <laughs> so I think it's very applicable. Yeah. But yeah, I will say, again, this is a season that almost everyone loves. And even me, Mr. Grumpy McGrumperson, I I love China. It's one of my top ten seasons. I could argue it's one of my top five seasons, maybe. And I'm having so much fun watching it. This is one of those, pretty much everybody I know likes China, except there's, it's funny, there's one guy I know named Adam Kolodny who hates this season. He he just loathes it. He will talk, anytime you mention it on the internet, he will talk about how how much he hates China. To the point that like, it jumps out at me. Like, I can't believe there's someone who hates Survivor China. And I actually had him write up a list of all his grievances with things he hates about China. So we'll be trying to address those during the podcast, just for no other reason than it's just not us all sitting around circle jerking about how, what a good season it is. I'm trying to give a little depth here. That's good, because that's what I'm, like, most nervous about. Like, I think we've addressed this before, that it's fun to talk about a season like Fiji that generally does not have the best reputation, and then we really make the case of why it actually is awesome. I'm a little bit nervous going into a season that's everyone thinks is awesome and what are we going to talk about this you know for these next 20 hours well i think i think what we can do is we can talk about what makes the season i feel so good and something that i want to sort of say right off the bat just general thoughts um you know we we watch i i don't know how you guys prepare for survivor historians podcast but generally what i do is i rewatch the season and in the chunks that we're sort of going to talk about and it, not to say that it's a chore necessarily to watch Survivor episodes, but sometimes when you're going back to a season, you're like, oh, I got to crank out a couple episodes of Survivor, take some notes, you know, do, do some of the researchy sort of things about it uh, and stuff like that. And, and this time, though, I started rewatching China and I liked it so much. I actually just continued watching the season today. Like I had a stretch of time and nothing really to do. And I just went, I'm going to keep watching China. So I, I keep I'm just enjoying watching this season and i think one of the reasons that the season is so beloved is it hits a lot of nice boxes of people when they talk about what makes a good survivor season for them but really to me what has stood out so far is that 
okay, there haven't been any like super high highs, you know, of like, oh, that's a, a moment that will go down in Survivor history is this one moment of, oh my gosh. But there haven't really been any low lows either. It's just been pretty consistently good the whole time. Well, I think historical context is also going to have a huge effect on our viewing of this season as well. Because as much as may, we may love seasons like Exile Island, or we might like seasons like Guatemala or Fiji, the fact is, we talk about it, that Survivor around season 10 or so is going into its sort of experimental phase where it's starting to really throw out these bunch of twists. We just had two 20-person casts in a row that have arguably been full of like these kind of recruits and kind of blasé people. Right off the get-go with this season, they emphasize how diverse this cast is. And I'm using diverse as an umbrella term not only to refer to the racial background, but also just coming from a series of backgrounds. It really is, as Jeff alludes to every season, you know, 16 people from different walks of life. They even outline the career paths of each person in this intro package. And I think it's very representative of how just, you know old school this feels and i feel like one reason why you really love this season mario if i may assume is because it does have a very old school feel these first few episodes there is a lot of talk about camp life that we have not heard in a good while even things like the hidden immunity idol are given new twists and they're they're not really talked about in these first few episodes because nobody really knows they exist except for those who have the clues and even if they have the clues they don't know where it is even though the camera keeps focusing on it so i feel like I don't know if I could put myself in the mind of the producers if they were thinking we need to go back to basics. But this does feel like a very back to basics scene for uh, season for me. And as someone whose heart lies in those first seven seasons, it feels like comfort food, basically. Yeah, the, the seasons that really jumped out at me when I was watching this one is it felt a lot like Thailand, obviously, just with the Asian themes. But it just it's kind of reminded me of Australia as well. It just kind of felt real raw, and the camp scenes were. Kind of like there wasn't a lot of uh, extraneous things been added to the game. It was just people in kind of a bleak situation trying to get by the best they can. It just kind of reminded me of of Ogakor and Kucha. So yeah, there's a lot of and a lot of stuff in this season that that is you, you, that people should love. But the one thing, like you mentioned earlier in the intro package, how they mention everyone's profession, like. I can't even remember the last time I saw a season that did that. Like, over here, we have a poker player, and then we have a waitress from New York City, and here's a here's a, a Christian radio talk show host and a grave digger. Like, they actually humanize these people and give you a little something about them before the first scene, before you even hear them talk. And it's just, it's, I really enjoyed the first episode in particular. I was going to say, the other thing that I think also brings it back to the old school feeling, and it's something that's talked about in a lot of the pregame um, specials that aired, I- historians here that at this point on uh survivor china contestants don't go on the early show anymore we don't get any more renee seiler so i was looking for other outlets to get more background information of what was happening at the time so i spent some time today watching the tv guide special that aired before survivor china came out and interviews with jeff and things like that and um in these in these previews to the season they jeff even says this is going to feel like an older school season to you you're going to see a lot of culture to it we're really bringing in as much of the chinese culture as we can to the season and I think that's something that you know plays out from right from the beginning and goes all the way to the end how the you know the producers really took the time to embed Chinese culture into the show I think another aspect that it really has going forward is from an editing perspective it really is ensemble storytelling and I've used that term to describe a couple of seasons throughout Survivor and it's it's this thing that there really are you know there are some under the radar players in this season but for the most part everyone almost 
has their chance in the spotlight to really develop their character. I mean, let's look at a season like Cook Islands, for example. Yes, the I-2-4 overcoming the Rotus are, uh, or the Raros, I'm totally mixing up my seasons there. Uh, it's, it's a big epic storyline, but that being said, you only remember about two or three people from that season because they're the main players, and then you're, they're sort of like your supporting players, and then there are, you know, the ensemble people dancing in the background. Here it really feels like these are 16 people that all have some sort of story going on. And whether you're Todd or whether you're Chicken, you each have a storyline over the course of these 13 or so episodes. And I really appreciate that because these people were cast for a reason. I want to get to know them. Yeah, and let's let's not overlook the most significant character in Survivor history, the most dynamic, and that, of course, is Amanda Kimmel. Hey, shut up. Stop that. So I have to I'll, I'll, I have to jump in and talk about Amanda Kimmel because anyone who's, who's known me from, you know, back in my early days of podcasting knows about my, obs- my obsession with Amanda Kimmel, which I will say now is like kind of got blown out of proportion. And actually watching this back now, I kind of shake my head at like how much I was into Amanda Kimmel. But the reason for that was because she was the first contestant from Montana to be on the show. So that was like a really big deal to have someone from Montana. And it wasn't that she was just from Montana. It was the fact that she also was, well, she's five years older than me, but she graduated from my high school. And so when Survivor China came out, I was like super into this and researching it. And I was on um, the newspaper and the yearbook at the time. So I went through all the old yearbooks and dug up the year she graduated and like did all this research on her. And I wrote an article about her in the school newspaper. Um, I found out that she was voted best dressed in high school as well as uh, I think it was most likely to become Miss America or something, something to do with pageantry. But no, and she was not voted. She was not voted best personality, though. Not best personality. Not most charismatic. Not like best on the debate team or something. You know, um, most likely to eat your neighbor. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think that was a question, but maybe she would have won that one as well. But um, so that's what really started this. And I had a couple of teachers who had her as a student. And I was trying to get some uh, info on her, and I remember my government teacher saying, "Very pretty girl, always half asleep in my class, but very pretty." <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this is funny because, again, for people who know me, Amanda's been like a litmus test for me for years with characters that are inexplicably popular and I don't understand why they're popular. And it's one of those things where I've always argued that if Survivor keeps throwing the same person out there long enough and they keep telling you she's a big deal, that eventually she will become a big deal. So Amanda's been like my ground zero on this for years. And uh, it, Paul and I are on quite a little collision course here with our Amanda, different levels of Amanda fandom. Can I uh can can I ask you a question though, Paul? Sure. Uh, is everyone in Montana just by default a hiking guide? <laughs> I guess. Well, it's it's really weird that they just slap on like hiking guide onto her because they you know they really bill her as the former Miss Montana. She's a beauty pageant, all these things, and then they just throw like hiking guide up on there just so. That- yeah, or something. That's it was kind of a bizarre choice. Because I figure, like, okay, so you know, you go outside, you go to school, you've probably hiked there. Like, you know, okay, you know, and if you go with a friend, I guess that technically qualifies you as a guide. Like, right. If you're hiking, I, if you're walking to school with more than one person, like, then uh, I, I get that I they don't maybe want to put unemployed or something like that on there. But and I'm sure she had some sort of job, but it was just like Amanda hiking guide Montana, and I was like, yeah, story checks out there. Like, well, I wonder how she, I wonder how she stacks up against Christy in terms of their outdoor knowledge. It's the dead eyes versus the dead ears of hiking. <laughs> Future season, dead eyes versus dead ears versus dead mouth. 
So this is why the, this, well. this is this is why deaf people don't listen to our podcast, Mike. I mean, there's a lot more obvious. I'm going to get, I'm gonna get so many reason. so many mean emails in Braille after this. <laughs> How do you do Braille in caps? Are the 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 bumps just a little bit higher? How yeah, do you tell it's angry? Slightly more raised. <laughs> Yeah, so so we have lots of fun Montana stuff going on this podcast. If you guys enjoy the the witty Montana banter, the Montana flavor, if you will, then this will be a very Montana heavy podcast. But we're all livid, so everything's good. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. For 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 what people for people if people don't know what Jay's talking about. There is a web series now. I'm not entirely familiar with this. I kind of caught it secondhand. Where someone decided to make Amanda the series of a uh, the hero of a series of cartoons, and it's called Livid Amanda, correct? Yes. Yes, it's it's and, from uh, there was there was a guy who did like kind of crude paint comics uh, with yeah, the MS in, Survi- in, in Survivor sucks, and uh, they disappeared for a long time, and then they came back randomly. And this is like very crudely ca- cartoon versions of these people but they're they're very very well done i suggest if you're ever on survivor sucks i think they're in like the monsters island forum or something where it's sort of memorialized but definitely take a look because they cover micronesia mostly there's a little bit of, of a callback to china during the micronesia reunion but it's really fun yeah and okay and what he's talking about is yeah the hero is livid manda because amanda's always livid and uh yeah so that that will become her nickname we may drop it from time to time but yeah if you want some research go on the internet go to survivor sucks look for I believe it's the mini adventures of of Livid Manda, and it is it is quite amusing. And I will argue that a lot of that is some of that is what made Amanda more popular than she actually should be. So people attributing personalities to her. Oh, I guess the fu from Paul is implied there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, yeah, as we as we mentioned in the end of the last podcast from Fiji. Jeff was uh, Jeff Probst was very excited to be able to cast a Survivor show in China. I believe no Western show had ever filmed in China yeah. before. It was I, like I, a really big deal. I, I, I want to talk about that because I know that you know you're probably not doing fan fiction at this point. So we we could skip that train, and that's that's really good. <laughs> Boy, we have an extra hour, Jay. Go. Oh, hey, all right, we freed up significantly. But I do want to talk about that. That was I remember. You know, we we didn't talk it so much on the, on the at the end of the Fiji podcast, but I do want to take a moment and talk about it. When they announced that Survivor was going to China, that was a big deal. Um, for those of you who are living in modern times and can't remember just seven, eight years ago or whenever this was, you know, China was sort of closed off to to a lot of the world. I mean, they they sort of didn't let people into their country much. Not not that there was like you know, I mean, there used to be you know embargoes against the country and all that other stuff, and it gets lifted. But China is very selective about who they let in. And and especially from from the West. And so the fact that Survivor could actually go there and film and, you know, China, to their credit, gave them pretty decent access to a lot of really cool stuff, uh, as we're going to see later on. Maybe not. We're not going to talk about it so much in this uh, edition of the podcast, but in later ones, like with the Great Wall of China and things like that, they gave uh, Survivor pretty good access to different things and, and played along really, really well. And so it was it was always a big sort of question, though, going into the season is, holy crap, we're going to China. Survivor's going to China. What are they going to be allowed to do? Where are they going to be? You know, it, it was a it, it was a really, really big deal. And so I was very interested in the season going in just to see China, I guess, and to see how it was all going to play out. And right off the gate, they're also really making an impression here where they don't, you know, drop them off right at the temple. They're having them walk with their luggage through the streets of modern Shanghai and have them take this train to a boat. And it's it's so interesting because I feel like 
maybe Pearl Islands might have been the last time that we really had people actually step out of civilization. And again, maybe it's speaking towards this theme of like we're plucking people from different aspects of life. But I feel like it's going exactly what, off of what you were saying, Jay, in terms of like, hey, we have the permits to film here. We're going to take in as much China as we can. We're not going to see the city for a long time until after the game ends. So let's take it in while we can before we send people into the, the, island, the lake of a thousand islands for more than a month. I also think that, that some of that is probably China having a little bit of a say, too, because they see that Survivor, you go to these primitive sort of places or go to these islands where, you know, like they went to Vanuatu and Fiji where people live sort of a more island-like lifestyle. And, you know, China's like, that's cool. You could you you could totally film on our backwoods. But I want uh, – the West should know that we live in cities and stuff too. So I think that, you know, there was probably a bit of that from the government saying you have to include a modern city and show that, you know, we're actually people that live in modern times. And I do like the analogy. Jeff uses it several times. He uses it in the preview for the second episode, too, where he's like, they traveled back in time. And it's like, they did? Holy shit. That's amazing. We're time travelers now. That's good stuff. I did notice how conspicuous it was that Jeff says modern Shanghai both times. Yeah. I mean, how dare you accuse a communist country of spreading propaganda media, Jay? <laughs> well, well hey, okay. <laughs> I just assumed everyone in China looked like those people in the, uh, in the opening credits. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, we're, we're the, the utmost of cultural sensitivity here. And in keeping with cultural sensitivity, the first thing we're going to do is throw a Christian radio host and Courtney into a Buddhist temple. Yeah, so this is how we open Survivor China is they uh, start in modern Shanghai and then they take a train and there's all these weird shots of them on the train and like James is walking around shirtless and they're kind of hanging out in their bunks talking, which may be the only train scene I remember in Survivor history. And then, uh, yeah, they end up at uh, they end up at this Buddhist temple. And I just wrote in my notes here. I'm like, God, there's so much culture and theme in just the first five minutes of this season. Like. And that's the one thing I've always argued with Survivor Seasons, that they should all stand on their own and be very distinct. Like when you think of a character or a scene, you know immediately what the location was, what setting was. And China is absolutely one of the best seasons for things just being distinct. And this whole opening scene in the temple is right up there. I do like, though, you know, Jeff points out when they get there. First of all, I always like to sort of think in the background, whenever they interact with local culture in some way i'm always like what's in it for the local culture to interact with survivor in some way and sometimes with a family or with a local village you know they let the survivors run around and stuff like that they probably give the village some money or give them you know some supplies or some barter or something that that the village can use you know i feel like i feel like you know like in pearl islands when they started out at that fishing village in panama like they must have given that village something to, you know, accommodate the survivors running around and, you know, buying shoes for a banana or something that day. But like, or a banana for a shoe or whatever was going on. But like with the with this Buddhist temple, I was always kind of like, what what was really, you know, Jeff was saying, oh, they're here to welcome you and I, so that you can use their land. And I was like, were they? I think that, you know, they were they were given some sort of thing and I was trying to figure that out. But I do like that they they sort of anticipated Leslie right off the bat because just like this is not a worship ceremony. It's just a welcoming ceremony. We're just going to go here. It's all cool. OK. And she couldn't even make it through the ceremony. But I do like that. You know, I feel like Jeff wouldn't include that if you didn't have Christian radio host in there with your uh, with your group. Yeah. And well, I mean, this- I actually. I was going to say, I actually know what the Buddhist temple got in exchange for uh, Survivor filming there. They got to meet the bad boy of poker, Jean-Robert. 
Oh, yes. They that's, were graced with his presence. That's good. <laughs> the bad boy. All right, go ahead, Mike. Uh, well, I was just going to say, I mean, I love, again, we're displaying all these different walks of culture. I mean, you have Leslie, you know, obviously she eventually walks out of the, the Buddhist ceremony. But even like our first confessional here is from our eventual first boot chicken. But he calls visiting a Buddhist temple like being a kid at a carnival, uh, which <laughs> lies like vastly in comparison to PG's professional about like how honored she feels to be here considering that her ancestors were chinese and that her grandfather just passed away a couple weeks ago and that he he would be delighted that she came out here so again just like looking at these cup these two couple of confessionals against each other is just a great symbol i believe in how these this cast of characters really just come from very very different viewpoints yeah, and there is the one scene that I I wrote about in the Funny 115. I had a lot of fun with it where Courtney's trying to pray and the, the monk next to her keeps correcting her hands and she starts rolling her eyes. Like, she looks like she's literally about to punch him about after the second or third time. It's just one of those, like, just like you said, just different aspects of people coming together in this one little place. It's kind of, it just amuses me. I don't know, Mike. You're, you're a New Yorker, so... I want. I want to ask you this question: Is Courtney up up at least until Survivor China? I mean, I mean, I know that we're thirty million seasons into this show now, but up until Survivor China, is Courtney just the mo- most New York contestant there has ever been on that show? Well, she's not Jewish, so I feel like that's one strike. Against okay, her. yeah, okay, um, <laughs> very but, fair. I mean, I- I mean, I feel like she definitely has one of the like driest senses senses of humor I think we've seen on a Survivor contestant in quite a while. Like, I feel like maybe Helen making another Thailand comparison is definitely up there as well. I could definitely see Courtney making a joke about how like if I had a gun, I'd shoot John Robert first and myself second if they were out on a boat in the middle of the lake. Uh, but I think that she definitely does represent New York well in that like if she has a problem or if something irks her, she will very easily vocalize it, uh, which, again, makes for great TV. And I absolutely love that. I feel like maybe in almost any other season, Courtney would be one of the first boots out of there just based on pure strength alone. But she's going to be our runner-up. So I am just heavily ecstatic to see 13 episodes of Courtney this season. Maybe it's my New York bias showing, but I'm happy to see her there. I, I'm, I'm going to preface this. I know we're going to move on and all that sort of stuff. I'm going to preface this by saying I'm probably going to you know, talk about things that I dislike or I'm going to ra- rail about Courtney a lot. And I want to preface this by saying Courtney Yates is one of my favorite contestants ever on Survivor. So it's very much from a place of love. I didn't really appreciate her at the time. <clears throat> she hasn't, I just remember loving James at the time, thinking James was such a great character. Well, who didn't in the story? Like, yeah. But then upon the more you rewatch, the more Courtney kind of jumps out at me as man. Courtney's really funny. And like Courtney, almost every one of her lines is funny. It's like yeah. the jokes don't bomb ever. And it's one of those things because I can't think of too many female contestants over the years that had her, her comedy success that she had. She's really funny, and that's it's just one someone that jumps out at me. So yeah, I'm a big Courtney fan. Courtney and I have exchanged emails over the years. She she was very appreciative when I wrote about her in the Funny One Fifteen. She even actually is one of the sponsors of the page now. She bought one of those support tiles. So yeah, Courtney's one of my favorites. I, I'm glad we get to watch her here. It, it's very New York, you know, because she's like, oh, what? I, I don't want to sit here and bow thirty seven million times. You know, I got I, I got places to be. <laughs> it's yeah, just like exactly. Yeah. You know, Listen, we, fa- we face those people in New York all the time handing us medallions over by Bryant Park. <laughs> like, we are used to walking past it. Leslie, on the other hand, is not, which is why I think she has such a vehement reaction. Though the editors definitely play with it a little bit. I mean, they, get, they have, like, 
horror movie-esque shots of these gold Buddha statues that like make warps them and causes Leslie to eventually walk out. Though, again, I don't, I, I am not making fun of Leslie's religious perspective here, but I do think it's a very fun out of context quote where Jeff asks her, asks her about it later on when they're assembled again, and she says. I'm in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and the only person I'll put my face on the floor is him. And just like if you if you replace the word Jesus with another man's name, uh, I feel like you get a totally different context out of that. And Courtney like Jean Robert. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see here. So let's uh, just glossing over my notes here. Let's also not overlook the fact that Frosty at the time was the youngest Survivor player ever, 20 years old, which I believe has since been beaten, but at the time he was the youngest. And that was a case where, like, obviously the age limit was 21, but apparently the uh, the producers were so taken by his video that they decided to let him in last minute. Yes. And what a dynamic character Frosty turned out to be. <laughs> Frosty's one of these characters where, you know, there, there are some people that go on Survivor and then they go on to do other things. Elizabeth Hasselbeck uh, and, and all that sort of stuff. But Frosty is one of those where he talks about, like, he was very ahead of his time even then, because he he mentions it in passing, you know, that he does parkour and he sort of explains parkour a little bit. And it's like parkour is a thing that has invaded itself into more of the more of the regular American lexicon. Not 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 that it's so commonplace, but it's like now when you say the word parkour in in in, in the in the year that we're podcasting, more people are going to not look at you with a very quizzical look on your face. But in 2007, 2008, whenever this 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 came out. You know, you said the word parkour, like a lot of people are not going to know what you talk about. Uh, but Frosty is, has been on American Ninja Warrior and you know, all those other things. Every once in a while you see Frosty running the courses and you're like, hey, Frosty, you're still doing it. Cool. You were great on China. You weren't, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get into the game here. So yet another old school thing about this season. Again, they introduce people with the professions. There's only 16 players. Yet another thing is the going into the game with the clothes on your back, which I'd completely forgotten about until I watched the first episode where, yeah, they're at the temple, they do their little ceremony, and uh, then they come out and Jeff says, all right, the game started, leave your suitcases here, you're going into the game with the clothes on your back. So right back to Pearl Islands with this one. And I love Jamie's, I don't have a bra on. And Jeff says, well, that's either going to make you very popular or quite a liability. (laughs) Yeah, we can't get one of those comments without Jeff being a perv. But but surprisingly, Amanda is probably the first one to get more blurs than, than Jamie does, despite not having a bra for the first three days of the game. <laughs> All right, so let's break down the tribes here. We will break down. We got the red and the yellow tribe, and um, I'm I'm going to try to pronounce these names as ethnically correct as I can. We don't want to do any, offend anybody here. So they are the Lomain tribe and the Mushu Pork tribe. If wow. I recall. Yeah, I know. We're going to go for it real early. <laughs> yeah, so that was, that was and, then, and then they merge into Long Dong, right? <laughs> yes. So, yeah, so we have the John Hu tribe, the yellow ones who are the fighting tigers, and the yellow ones are Frosty, Dave, Jamie, Eric, PG, Sharia, Ashley, and Chicken, our old favorite chicken. Then we're going to go to the red tribe, the Fei Long tribe, which means flying dragon, uh, Jean Robert, the Frenchman. We have, then we have Leslie, Amanda, Courtney, Denise, James, Todd, and Aaron. So, and oh a, my God, in this episode, they've already told everyone's profession and they've reminded us of everyone's names. Like, there's here. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the producer's just going for extra points, extra credit at this point. 
Well, then, although, although we we just get chicken, like you know, some people when they get a nickname on the show, you know, like like Rocky and Fiji, you know, like at least we learn we heard his name James, but you know, oh, I just go by you know he looks like Rocky, we'll call him Rocky, but just right off the bat, it's just chicken. He looks like a chicken, we'll call him chicken. Yeah, chicken, all right. <laughs> yeah, it is funny they never actually mention his real name. Although again, Frosty's a nickname, so I guess we're going. Uh, free and hard with the long with the nicknames here at this point. I can, ima- I can imagine the Chinese locals standing by, being like, "These Americans nickname themselves Chicken and Frosty." <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right, and then uh, yet another thing that's very unique to the season, and again, it just goes with my rule that all seasons should have something distinct about them that stands out. That Probst gives each tribe the art of war by Sun Tzu to read, and like this will explain the game. This will give you a heads like a leg up in the game, like. That's just a neat little detail that no other season has ever done. I just love that he gives them the art of war. Now, I don't know this for sure, and I'm sure someone out there that's a big Jeff Probst fan you know, will, will go. But it, look, I've read a, a bit of the art of war. I've taken an Imperial China class in college and all that sort of stuff for my history degree and whatnot. The art of war is a slog. And I love it when Jeff is just like, yeah, here's the art of war. It's a copy. You read that. It's, it's good reading right there. It should help you. And I'm like, Jeff, have you read this it doesn't seem like you have i'm just saying it would have been really funny if like that was homework and jeff comes in like okay first immunity challenge we're gonna have a pop quiz about the art of war the tribal gets the most correct wins immunity like the art of war is is a book where it's it's broken up into chapters so you can summarize a chapter and i think that's probably what the pamphlet they were given but they were given like an extreme summary of what was going on but like to actually read the Art of War, like a translation, even so. But to read a translation of the actual text of the Art of War, that is a slog. I guess if you're not, if you don't have much to do out there, or you know, if you're not willing to do things like Jean Robert or something like that, maybe you've got time to to sit there and read that. But I love it when he's just like, you just you go read the Art of War. It's like someone just going like, oh, you, you're you're going to be on a, a train ride for two hours. Here's War and Peace. Have fun. <laughs> Well, supposedly they, I think Todd said at some point in an interview after the show that Mark Burnett had sent everyone a copy of The Art of War prior to even getting on the show. Like before they got there, they were given that as kind of their, as part of their pre-work. Do you think Chicken read it at home? I I think Chicken (laughs) used it to line the chicken coop. (laughs) The Art of War, this this is the worst painting I've ever seen. (laughs) All I knew about The Art of War prior to uh, Survivor China was that it was one of the, uh, the world wonders in the game Civilization 3. And so it was one of those things, when you built it, it put a barracks in every city on your, in, uh, every city on your continent. So I wasn't sure that was really going to help them. <laughs> I, knew that would get, I knew that would get no reaction. That's, it, it, that's for our two listeners out there who play Civ Look, 3. no, it's GG, because, it's GG because Todd rushed the Great Library. So after that, the game was just won. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> All right, so here we go. We got the two tribes broken down. We got the the flying dragons and the fighting tigers. And then uh, Probes has given them their bamboo uh, Cliff's Notes versions of the Art of War. And now they're broken up, and they go to their camps. And uh, uh, immediately on the Fei Long, our leader is Aaron, the surfing instructor. He he kind of steps up. He becomes the leader, but he doesn't really want to. He's smart enough to realize, you know, this is a bad idea, but I guess I'll do it anyway. Yeah, I love how Aaron's like, okay, I'm going to do it subtly. And then it immediately cuts to him being like, this is how you row a boat. And he's immediately <laughs> right at the front of the boat. So, like, I mean, this guy is probably as subtle as you might ex- expect a surfing instructor to be. Yeah. Aaron, I feel, and, and you, you talked about it earlier, is that 
you know, because there's only 16 uh, people and because we're getting a lot of focus on on people, we're going to get a, a good shot of everyone. But I feel like Aaron really could have had the title of biggest douche of the early part of this game had Dave not existed. I feel like Dave stole a lot of Aaron's thunder in this game. Well, it's funny when I'm watching Aaron, Aaron actually makes a lot of sense. Like he seems oh, like yeah. he's got a good head on his shoulders. He's trying so hard not to be a douche. Like, so I, I think Aaron actually, I mean, he, I think he totally gets screwed. We'll obviously talk about that later down well, the road. Yeah, but yeah totally. But. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, Dave totally steals his thunder as the, the crazy alpha male douche who everyone wants to go away. All right, so yeah, so we go to Fei Long, we start there, and immediately we learn this is Courtney's private hell because she's surrounded by, in her own words, flight instructors and Sunday school teachers. And then, it's, again, it's, it's, it's a it's land very- of flight attendants and Sunday school <laughs> yes. teachers. And, and that's this is again very Courtney, very New York to be like to basically say the reason why I hate this is because everyone is so positive, which is so very corny that in any other environment, nine out of 10 people would absolutely love this situation. But the one person to say, no, everyone's a little too cheery, giving each other a thumbs up. I am in my, per- in my own personal hell right now. Well, well you know what's you funny? Thing- what- Go ahead. Leslie looks up and goes, well, the big guy upstairs is providing. <laughs> what's funny is later in the season, James even says the same thing that Courtney says. He's like, yeah, I don't like uh, I don't like being around happy people. My people are miserable. I like miserable people. So it's just or they're or they're dead. <laughs> yes. All right. So yeah. So Courtney's stuck in her own private hell, being stuck with flight attendants, Sunday school teachers, and a girl from Montana. Which I've added that part, but I'm sure that was implied somewhere. <laughs> what What's and, nice? What's nice about Fei Long and, and it's what gets off to a good start. And those people who uh, listen to this and want to go is that you know Leslie and James. Uh, you know, and Aaron are, are doing a bunch of work, uh, or not Leslie, so, well, Leslie too, but Denise and James and Aaron are doing a bunch of work, and even Courtney and like Amanda are, are doing some things. John Robert is not doing a whole bunch, but it's like they had like a bunch of workhorses, and it's like as a group, for the most part, they just collectively decided to do work and they sort of worked toward one goal, which was nice. Cut to Jean Hu. <laughs> oh boy. Well, first, 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 we have to get John Robert here, which. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, John Robert, I feel like we're going to talk about quite a bit. Well, I forgot how much John Robert, I, in my opinion, John Robert, like between him and Dave, they almost make the first like four or so episodes because almost everything that happens on Fei Long is John Robert centric just because he is such a grandiose figure. And it even starts here where he walks to Tremail with Todd. They figure out what Tremail is, which, again, speaking towards the ultra awesome cultural impact of this season, is just like a terracotta figure. And then he basically pulls Todd aside and says, like, hey, you're not really a flight attendant, are you? And Todd says, I am. And he says, yeah, well, you know, I, uh, you know, my, my career, I have, an, I have an ability to read people, and I, I, I just want to know, I, I think you're devious, and I think you're going to be up to things. I just want to let you know that, just so you know, well, you know where I'm coming from. <laughs> well, yeah, this will speak. I mean, this is John, or Jean Robert's entire story arc as we go through the season, that he's very bright and perceptive. He's actually good at reading people. He just isn't particularly good at socializing with people. <laughs> Like, you can totally identify Todd as the devious one and not tell him that. Well, there's yeah, that, is- but, also, but also he's he, he, he makes some reads, but then other ones, because he identifies Todd right away as devious and, and a potential threat, which, I mean, great read. Uh, I'm not going to say that's not a good read, but then he's basically like, I don't believe you're a flight attendant, which is like, again, it's this whole thing where he's like, this guy's clever, he must be lying about his profession? And Todd, it's like flight attendants can't be devious. It's also like 
let's remember, this is probably the first conversation the two of them have in the game. Whereas usual first-time conversations are, so where are you from? What do you do? How many children do you have? John repairs is, I don't believe your job is actually what it is. I think you're a snake. Yeah. Classic bad boy behavior. Classic bad boy behavior. I mean, you know, he wasn't like, well, I'm a hiking instructor. You know, it was... (laughs) He said, "Guide, guide, <laughs> a hiking guide." So, but like, yeah, that—that's the whole thing. Was that Jean Robert's like, "I don't believe you're a flight attendant because you're devious." It's like, it's the whole thing of in Jean Robert's mind, he's like, he makes a he makes a correct read, like you said, Mario, is that Todd could be a threat and you know is 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 a major player, which is correct. That's a good read. But then he's basically like, he must be lying about his profession because devious people. he's thinking Todd either A, is lying about his profession just as part of his deviousness, or B, he's a really sharp player. Sharp people aren't flight attendants, which is just, it's it's not just socially insensitive, it's just culturally insensitive, which I think is just the MO of John Robert, which is, I just don't know how people, like, I I know what's in their minds, but I don't know how how society works as a whole. And you know, I've been on an airplane where you push the little button for the flight attendant and they see it and they don't come over right away. Yeah. So they, they can be plenty devious. Yeah, did John Robert just get like fucked over by a flight attendant on his way here and he's just taking out his aggression on Todd? Well, that's the thing. He thinks they can't be devious, so it's almost the opposite. Like maybe a flight attendant saved his life in Nam or something. All right, so what have we got here? We're going to John Who, like Jay said, and it's totally different over at John Who. We have a chicken basically telling people how to do stuff. They don't like being told to do stuff, so chicken's like, I don't think I'm going to tell people to do stuff no more. And that's this is basically chicken's story. It's going to work out great for him in this episode. <laughs> yeah. They're like, hey, chicken, what should we do? I don't know. I'm just here following you guys. Like, we're 20 chicken and definitely, you're... Yeah. Chicken definitely peaked at the carnival at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> Yeah, that was the most committed statement he made the entire episode. Because basically it's like, chicken, what should we do? And he basically just talks himself in a circle with a bunch of non-answers because he doesn't want to give his opinion. (laughs) Yeah. So basically what happens at John Hu is while Fei Long is all working and being miserable, uh, John Hu just kind of stands around and jokes about stuff. And they're all giggling and dancing and stuff. And and right off the bat, chicken has no way to relate to these people. And also we have PG off to the side who cannot connect to their wackiness in her own words. So PG, well, as much as I love PG as a character, she's kind of a stick in the mud. She does not seem like she's filled with a lot of joy here. Yeah, she's like, I cannot connect to their wackiness. So right off the bat, we're going to have I cannot cannot dance soldier boy, nor do the sprinkler. (laughs) (laughs) Love the sprinkler mood. Yeah. Too bad Chicken wasn't doing the sprinkler. That would have been good. No, chicken was doing the uh, chicken was doing the Job chicken dance. <laughs> he was doing the chicken dance. Yes. Well, the, the problem was was that Jean Hu's got they've got these younger people like Frosty and Eric and Jamie, uh, and and they don't really want to do much, right? And and Ashley's sort of trying to hang out with them and and and, and sort of socialize. And Dave hasn't become Dave yet. Sharia doesn't want to do anything, as she will say in later episodes. And like chicken, you know. I think that he tried something, and that's the whole thing is he tried because I think he, he you know, Chicken wanted to be a worker bee and a workhorse, and Chicken sort of knew some outdoorsy stuff, and so he sort of knew what was going on. But the problem is, is that no one was listening to him right off the bat, and he wasn't connecting with them. So then he just took the other tack of, you know what, I'm just going to shut up and do what they say, and I'll just kind of go along with the plan, and that's going to get him later. And I think the problem is, is that PG sort of stuck in the middle with all this and basically saying, we need to accomplish things. We need to get things done. And chicken is just not helpful. 
and the uh, young people are just being young people. And so I think PG is just trying to like bash your head against this wall and say, let's get something done. And they're not, re- they're not responding. And so I think she's just kind of stuck. Yeah. What I think the segment does was does so well here. It shows how you can set up so many different characters so quickly. And yet it doesn't feel like you're doing these intentional throwing in a little like character scene here, character scene here. It all really goes very cohesively together. Like you mentioned, it starts off with Sharia. She's walking up to camp and she like doesn't have the right footing on. And she's talking about how she's out of her element. And that's instantly how we get to know Sharia is that this is not really her thing out there that we get the whole thing with chicken and what his storyline is going to be for the episode. There actually is a quick scene where it shows Dave farting there and everyone be like, Oh, Oh gosh to that. That kind of sets up what we're going to see from Dave wrestler and then we see right away that pg is going to have a stick up her ass so right away that's like <laughs> five eighths of the tribe that we you know we get in this if you watch just the scene you predict how are these people going to be for the season we can already start you know telling what the character story is going to be for all these people to be and fair, they, do, P- they do have a shot they do have a shot of jamie looking confused so that's six of eight <laughs> yeah to be fair pg did i believe ask chicken if she should pull the stick out of her ass but chicken didn't really give any sort of answer so she kept it i don't know he said what do you think yeah it's it's a good thing to to mention paul because that's what i think is what makes this season work so well is that it has a really nice narrative and a good flow and maybe it's because there were less characters and the fact that they could focus on them. I feel like in a lot of modern Survivor, you have a lot of characters, and everyone's just sort of like, they get on the on the tribe, and it's it, it's no longer just, they, they try to just build a shelter, but it's just basically like, all right, when's the first swap? Yeah. You know, when's this? And it's like, they just look towards, like, milestones towards shakeup. Whereas with just a starting tribe of eight, and no, you know, there's no guarantee of a swap or anything like that, especially with a, a two tribes of eight, you know, you just kind of have to look in your tribe and go, oh, well, I'm stuck with these guys. How do I need to work with these guys? And it's it creates a sort of a, a dynamic where people have to really just sort of look inward as opposed to looking outward as some sort of game element. Well, what's interesting to me is that, you know, when people look back on Survivor China nowadays, they think, oh, it's the Todd season. It's with Todd, Courtney, Amanda, James, those guys. But when you watch these early episodes, like those aren't the major characters yet. Like, I forgot how much airtime Ashley gets. I forgot how much airtime Leslie gets and Dave gets. Like, they got some significant airtime for early boots. Like, the story is not even about those uh, later characters yet. Like, this is the Jean Robert show. This is the Leslie show. There's, there's a really good job of spreading the characters around in this season. Well, Ashley's airtime might have a reason behind it, which was, I mean, I don't think she was on the Gary Hogaboom Hawkins level of notoriety going into this, but I mean, she was she's a WWE diva, and I feel like wrestling fans, at least going into the season, really knew who she was. Not only that, I mean, we're going to get votes at this Tribal Council for Chicken, Ashley, and PG, and I feel like even within this like five-minute section, they do a fantastic job of showing reasons why each of them could get votes. And Ashley's main one is that she wakes up the next morning. They were they didn't get a shelter built. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and they, are, they like basically huddle under that gate all night, ironically, the one that has the hidden immunity idol above it. But Ashley wakes up the next morning and she is wrecked physically. She she dry heaves. She has like a you know she probably has a big fever. She has chills all day and she is just not feeling well. Ironically, a dry heave is just your body no selling vomit. Uh, no sell. Yeah, your wrestling fans. Yes. Uh, let's let's go before we go to day two. Let's one more scene on day one. I wanted to focus on this is where Leslie meets James for the first time over on uh, uh, yes. day long. <laughs> so good. Yeah, where yeah, it's kind of endearing in a way because James, you know, he's a hard worker. He's this big, tall, muscular guy, but he's like almost painfully shy. Leslie says, like he doesn't talk. He's really quiet, and so she actually goes over there. 
And this is reminiscent of the day one on Pagong when everyone felt bad for uh, Colleen because she was so quiet that that someone went down there and kind of included her in the conversation. This is like Leslie just being a super nice person wants to go over and talk to James and introduce herself and make him feel like he's part of the group. And it's a great scene. She's like, oh, hi, what do you do? He's like, I bury people. Which is, <laughs> That's, That's interesting. Like, yeah, it's a great icebreaker. The thing with like, Leslie is she, Leslie actually just bugged me a lot in the season. She gets on my nerves, but I think she's a great casting choice because she just like really sticks to her, like her, the, the conflicts that comes with her being like such a strong Christian radio host, like conflicting with the game of Survivor. Like he mentioned something about, you know, not being as charming or something. And her first uh, comment back is charm is deceptive. <laughs> and it's like it's just funny to like hear that because like you don't think about that in the game of Survivor. Uh, you know, you talk, you just know charm is a good thing to have in Survivor. But right away we have her, you know, reminding us, well, charm is charm is deceptive. Yeah. And I love that even another thing we see about James here is that like James knows a good amount of two dollar words for a grave digger. You would not <laughs> expect it. You would think of like groundskeeper Willie when you think of grave diggers, in my opinion. <laughs> so to have James say, as you said, Paul, like I could be more sociable and and charming, like I would not think that a grave digger would, would flat out come out with the word sociable unless he was prompted with it. <laughs> Yeah, James is just a really interesting guy because you'll we'll get this more as the season goes along. That he's actually very eloquent in a way. Sometimes when he's talking, he weaves together these great arguments, these great quotes and phrases. But he's got such a thick accent and just kind of a, the way he talks. It's it's an interesting little dichotomy. But he's you can tell he's got a lot going on. He's quite smart when you listen to his arguments sometimes. Well, I think that's because James is you know there's other things that he was doing. I mean, clearly he's you know he works out and. And, and has other interests, right? I mean, what he says about, you know, being a gravedigger is he likes it because he likes the hours and he likes the fact that he's by himself. I mean, James is sort of telling you that in a lot of ways he's just an introvert, right? And it's like, yeah. you know, he, I, I, you know, grave digging I don't think is his passion, right? Like, it's not just like, <laughs> I want to be a gravedigger. But it's like he does it because he doesn't mind. He clearly doesn't mind hard physical labor. And I think that he likes the fact that it's sort of at a, a decent pace for him. Uh, it's it's away from people or living people, I guess you know, and it's just you know it, it's 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 just something that he's doing to pay the bills, but he's got other interests, other places, and that's sort of you know that he's more than meets the eye in in, in that way. Yeah, and there's a great quote that he has here again. It's like uh, Rudy at the start of Borneo, going back to Borneo yet again, where he says, you know, there's more of them than there are to me. I got to fit in with them. They don't have to fit in with me. James even has a quote like that. He's like, I got to do good in challenges. I got to make them love me. So that's the thing. Like he's not he's not going to get by on being nice and friendly and social. I got to make him love me, and that's the thing. He just has to the work ethic and challenges. That's what's going to uh, ensure his success out here. <clears throat> I do have to say, Paul, you know, I want to make fun of Leslie because she's kind of goofy in a way, but she's so earnest and sweet in the stuff she's saying, and she can tell she totally means it every time she's talking. That I have a hard time picking on Leslie, like. She just seems like well, one of the more she real has some, people. She has some gene in her, for sure. I'm going to try to be nice, <laughs> but she's got a little gene in her. Okay, if you start taking down Leslie, I'm taking down Amanda. This is tit for tat right now. I'm telling you right now. Okay, let's go. <laughs> All right, <clears throat> so we have finished day one. Again, yeah, Jean Hu does not build their tribe. They've been dancing all night or whatever. They have no, no shelter. or no, no shelter. We go to day two, and uh, yeah... Jean, who was not doing well, and this is where we get the tree mail for the first challenge. 
And uh, as always, in keeping with the theme, it's, it's this really cool dragon tree mail with a little uh, paper dragon. It's really kind of this intricate little uh, piece of art they hand out, and Todd brings it back. He's all excited. And we're about to go into our first challenge of Survivor China. But first, uh, Todd says, hey, while we're here, let's crack into that art of war. And they talk about chapter one, which essentially, Clef's old version says, elect a leader. And we get yet another part of the storyline of Aaron basically having leadership hoisted upon him. And that Todd <laughs> literally sits there and says, well... You've been, you know, you've been kind of leading us. I think you should be the leader. And even he admits in confessional, like, I did that because I want to really put the onus on him and have the big target on his back so I can join up with him. But if people are going to target my alliance, they're going to target Aaron first. That is a fantastic strategy. That's one of the things I used to write about in my column all the time. I always want to be in that alliance and power, but never be the head. Make sure someone else is the head. And that was, I just love the way that Todd articulated that because it's perfect. Well, and, and what it does is it, it illustrates, and again, you always have to remember when you're watching Survivor, you're watching a television product, yes, there is a game that is going on behind the scenes, and there are plenty of people out there, and especially in you know, the more modern seasons now that you know, podcasting is more of a thing, and you know, there's more blogs, and, and you know, the RHAP universe is you know, blown up, and we get all this sort of coverage, and we're sort of spoiled with coverage, and so people can sort of break things down back then, or more, but, but even back then, you know, we had our, our basic internet points, but you always have to remember, the, if you see something on the TV, it is there for a reason. It is, it is pointing out someone's foibles or fa- faults or character uh, sort of their elements of their character or it's part of the narrative driving together the story and so they talked about jeff said hey i've given you guys the art of war really study it and the reason why they show that is because i think that survivor and jeff probes and that wanted to basically say hey if you follow the art of war that is to that will succeed in the game will it in real life probably not but you see that you know todd talked about the art of war and how they should elect a leader and you saw fei long sort of elect aaron as a leader did Jean Hu elect a leader right away before this first challenge? Well, we don't know. That's the thing. They did I not. I thought they were going to do democracy. They were. Well, that, that's <laughs> later. But you see them not do that. And you see Fei Long do that. Again, it's a narrative element for the fact that Fei Long is following the art of war right now. Jean Hu is not. Maybe they are. But that's what we're being shown. And so you kind of have to go with that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, again, people watch the show. And this is a very simplistic way of watching. They say, well, Todd's the only one doing anything. And that's you know, something you have to get past. Like, well, Todd's the only one shown doing anything. Yeah. Probably because it's fitting in the story. Because, yeah, yeah, you go to Jean Hu, there very well could have been a confessional where Ashley's saying the same thing. I put the leadership on PG because I want her to fall and I'm in the team. I'm like, they're very well. And yeah, everybody else could have been saying the same stuff too. But yeah, like Jay said, it's a TV show and that's going to be the narrative. Okay. The art of war is leading into success because that's clearly what Probes wants you to take from this. Right. And then Chicken reads The Art of War, and what he got from it was, don't give any opinion about anything ever. Yeah. Chicken, what did you think of The Art of War? Well, the thing is, you know, I'm just along <laughs> for the ride. <laughs> what do you think, Sun Tzu? <laughs> <clears throat> All right, so we're going into episode one, the immunity challenge. This is the where they carry the big dragon through the little obstacle course, then they have to uh, cross a drawbridge and get to the end. That's It's a cool little challenge, again, that only could happen in China. It's a specific just to this season, which I love. It's, it, now, I want to take I want to take a pause for a second. Just I want to think I want you to think about how overwhelmed Courtney would be about this challenge because in Courtney's pregame interview, um, you know, she talks about a variety of different things, but obviously they were asking her how she thought she would perform in challenges, and she describes like a sample an example challenge as 
like carrying an egg on a spoon race. Like that's like <laughs> what she kind of like, she throws yeah. it out there about our shoes or whatever we're going to do out here. So she's <laughs> in sack races and I mean, the it's carnival that episode. chicken yeah. alluded yeah. to. Yeah, Courtney's my favorite Brady child. I really love her on that show. <laughs> so just think about what toss. she's thinking now when she shows up for this. <laughs> this holy shit a dragon. This is also a very old schoolish sort of episode one challenge, if you're going that way, which is take a thing and drag it to the end. Um, and sometimes the thing is, you, you know, it's, it's, it's like a heavy thing with fire on it. This one doesn't really have many fire sort of elements. But, you know, they have this dragon that they have to kind of lug through a uh, uh, an obstacle course and then take to the end. So it's it's sort of just that, hey, guys, bring something over to this place. And I like how they get their running shoes for the challenge and for the rest of the game. But I'm sure Jamie was like, okay, uh, can I get a bra? And they just <laughs> deny her completely. So she's, they all, Ashley doesn't have to wear her 20 pound boots anymore, but Jamie is still braless for the duration of the game. Oh, I'm sorry, Jamie. Do you wear running shoes on your chest? No? <laughs> then no! <laughs> all right. So, yeah. So the first challenge is, is good. They all go through it. Courtney lives a nightmarish existence when there's no spoon and egg involved. And yes, so Fei Long wins behind James, and this will be a pattern we're going to see in a couple episodes in a row here. James leads Fei Long to victory. Well, not just James leads Fei Long to victory, because, you know, they do talk about, you know, okay, Fei Long sort of, as you can see, they, they were carrying the dragon a little bit quicker, and then James couldn't unclip from his thing, because, you know, there's a little section in the middle where James and then Frosty for Jean Hu ran it, where they had to basically leap over a couple obstacles and lower some drawbridges to where they had to release a key to open a door to get them through, and, you know, Frosty for, oh, Frosty forgot to lower a drawbridge and he had to run back there. But, I mean, he's parkour guy, so he just ran up there and did it real quick. And when they got to the end, Fei Long had a very slight bit of a lead. But as you can see, Jean Hu's going to have issues with puzzles a little bit in this, in this show. It's a little bit of a recurring theme. And it starts off right off the bat where at the very end of the challenge, they each are holding a little pulse section of this paper dragon that they're carrying. And at the very end of their hole, or of their pull is got a, a different sort of notch, like it's a plus or a circle or, or some sort of geometric pattern of some sort. And there are pegs in the ground and they need to place their dragon in the pegs and only one of their uh, their poles will go into one of the holes. So it's a, sort of like a little puzzle where you need to figure out where exactly your pole should go. And, you know, Frosty's just like, they're stopping in the middle and trying to look for Frosty's, whereas like you can see Fei Long get to the end and the, immediately Aaron just goes to where, sort of the end where he figures the head of the dragon is going to be. And it's just like, Fei Long just figures out the puzzle in like two seconds and Jean Hu's like, what's a puzzle? Well, to be fair, Jay, this isn't Sudoku, so Jean right, had exactly. an inherent disadvantage. How hard could that puzzle be? That's basically sorting blocks from kindergarten. It's it's literally like look at the end of your pole and find find your peg like that that was it and it was just like it just completely stymies Jean Hu which is <laughs> it's it, that's not a good start for them you know so it's 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 less about oh James gets him to victory or Fei Long Aaron leads them and fe- figures out the puzzle it's just like Jean Hu just absolutely got they were like what what is, uh, what is going on maybe Boy. PG and Jamie were throwing it maybe if I had read the Art of War. <laughs> Yeah, yes. chapter one, how to put your dragon's pole in the right <laughs> shape slot. How sorting blocks work. <laughs> All right, so yes, yeah, so Jean Hu has lost the first challenge. 
And they are hurting at this point. They have no shelter. They have no fire. They don't even have plans for a grand fire pit yet. They're really hurting at the moment. The fire pit, man. Yeah. Ashley's sick. They haven't eaten any food. They go back, and now they're in trouble. And uh, PG's crying. Yeah, PG's crying. And we get a nice little moment. That stick out of her ass. It's hurting. (laughs) <laughs> well, d- to be fair, Dave is going to Dave it up, and by Dave it up, I mean he's going to not like necessarily console her as much as he's going to hold her in a vice grip, in a tight embrace, and just say, just cry it out. Yeah, come on, just cry it out. And he, he segues this into this, like, what he thinks is probably a rousing speech to his tribe about how, like, tribal council is just a fact of life. It's something we're going to have to deal with. <laughs> it's like, Dave is like, he's like the dick Dave Johnson. Hey, sports fans! Bang a rang, (laughs) bang a rang! I will kill you. But like, it's you know, you know, PG's frustrated. And what I like about this is Paul mentioned it earlier that they set up all these sort of character things, and then when they immediately get back from tribal council, like in a very short manner, they set up all of sort of the boot options for the tribal council tonight. I mean, you see the fact that PG is she's breaking down, and you can see that you know the game is sort of weighing on her a little bit and she's frustrated and she's saying look i'm sorry to cry but there's so much to do and we lost in tribal council and then you could see that ashley was sick and you could see that chicken is annoyed for the fact that ashley was sick and that she's not done really much because she hasn't been feeling well and then you could see that people are upset with chicken they're like chicken what do you think and chicken's not giving his answer and in a very short amount of time even during this whole sort of scramble before tribal council they very quickly sort of point out oh any of these guys could go home and there's a good reason for that yeah, it's such an old school way of storytelling, and it really jumped out at me when I watched this. Uh, uh, when you watch a bunch of modern seasons, then go back and watch something like China, like it's amazing. They come back from the challenge, and they say, "Well, okay, PG's being bossy. It might be her. All right, Ashley's sick. It might be her. Uh, chicken sucks. It might be chicken." And that's it. That's all you get. And then we go right to tribal council. Like, there's none of this 10 minutes of strategy talk where the vote changes like five different times. Oh, let's do this. We're going to split the vote. We're going to do like, there's none of that in this season. It's so interesting because it's just, all right, here's the three targets. It could be one of them. Let's go. Well, you, get, just, you get some yeah. talking with people just about which of these problems annoys you the most, right? Like, yeah. does chicken annoy you the most? Does the fact that Ashley can't do anything annoy you the most? Is PG going around being PG annoy you the most. And you could see that most of the people were sort of on the, on the line of, well, you know, chicken's annoying me the most. So if you're looking at it, you're like, chicken's probably going to go to tribal council, but let's go to tribal council. Yeah. It's just, they don't convolute the storytelling is what I'm trying to say. They don't just, okay, here's what Eric thinks. Here's what Sharia thinks. Okay. Now Sharia just convinced Eric to change. They don't convolute it by doing all that stuff. I really appreciate it in this. There are a couple of wardrobe choices I question at tribal council. And I know that sounds weird, but there were things that I picked up on. First, Frosty is wearing his hat to the side like a little asshole, and I still, I still don't know why he did that, because he never wears it to the side again, but it just, it's, like, it just, it's something I picked up on. The second thing is I know PG is a jewelry designer from California, but still, like, how did girlfriend, let alone, you know, clean and keep these, like, dangly earrings and then decide to wear them to tribal council? Like, I can't think of anyone who really, even Sarah Jones, Miss Cleopatra herself, did not, like, dress herself up and decorate herself with accessories to go to tribal council. And that's Mike Bloom in his fashion tips of tribal council section. <clears throat> Who wore it better? <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> so yeah, so we get to Tribal Council. It's basically, I mean, we know who the three targets are, but the interesting thing about Tribal Council in this one is, you know, Probe says, you guys don't have a leader. He, and he says, is there anybody who's willing to step up and be the leader starting now? And Dave's hands, of course, shoots up. He's like, K Garnet, Garnet, I farted. And he, he raises his hand. And then uh, we have uh, PG also agrees to be the leader. So two people step up and be the leader. And uh, that's that should be their storyline starting with next episode. But yeah, now we go to the vote. And now they're not going to have any more problems once they have these two as leaders. <clears throat> yeah. So anyway, the first person's voted out and he nothing is said about it. There's nothing exciting. It goes silently. It goes yes. silently, yes. So yeah, so Steve Chicken Morris is voted out first on uh, Survivor China. <clears throat> and out of nowhere, when he's voted out, he screams. Has someone else like to do it? I, my, I do not have the damn! live post. Thank you. Mike Bloom with his chicken impression. Yes, that's his damn where he screams. And I had a lot of fun with it on the Funny 115. I have it ranked number eight on uh, version two right now. Is one of my top ten moments of the middle Survivor seasons. It's a scene I absolutely love. And uh, this is one of those interesting little crossover moments that actually kind of made it off Survivor. And I wrote about it in my entry that... I remember Ellen DeGeneres thought this was the funniest thing, this this damn clip, and she played it over and over for like two weeks on her show. And I don't even know if she watches Survivor. I think someone just sent it to her. <clears throat> and just the clip of Chicken being voted out and then screaming damn and the two girls in front kind of jumping. Sharia and I think it's it's Ashley on the left, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, they, they both jump because he says it comes out of nowhere. And Ellen thought that was the funniest thing. She would play that on her show. And again, my, my wife tapes Ellen every day, so I get to see all the clips. But I just remember that it was one of these survivor moments that actually crossed over into the mainstream, and it, you don't see that very often anymore. You still good with that moment being number eight? Uh, I didn't feel like I had a lot to say about it. It kind of stands on its own. I probably wouldn't put it at eight now. It, again, it's, there's not much I could write about that one. I don't like those sudden outbursts or uh, slapstick ones being so high because there's nothing to say about them. So I probably would drop that one now, but it, it does hold up. It's still a fun Oh, yeah. It, it was good. It's, 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 it's a good fun damn that we can get going. Exactly. So, and and you, have to write, you have to write about Chicken, I mean, because Chicken was such a fantastic, beloved character that everyone still talks <laughs> about. And on paper, I mean, I would question the choices of Jean Hu here, considering that, again, if they're choosing between PG, Ashley, and Chicken, I feel like most of the time you would say, well, Chicken, even though he doesn't really contribute in terms of his opinion, he's a workhorse, and so you want to keep him around. But I almost feel like what I realized from John Hu in its initial stages is that it almost has this oolong-like quality uh, for a variety of reasons, one of them being, let's decide on your leader right now, but the other one being that I feel like their guys are worse than Fei Long's, but their girls are better than Fei Long's. And Oolong had that situation happen where when they had a lot of those challenges where they were matching up you know guys against guys and girls against girls the girls would almost always take the points i'm thinking of like sumo at sea as an example and they're going to do the same thing here with john who so i feel like maybe john who kind of realized that that there really wasn't a weak link in terms of a female so they decided to say okay we can expend a male here but i feel like in this day and age that would still be kind of a question mark decision it does seem that like pg probably should have gone first that's my instinct She's not fun. She doesn't fit in. She's not particularly strong. Like, they don't know what she's going to bring to the table. At least, Chicken, you have to expect some work ethic. I mean, admittedly, he hadn't done a lot of it yet, but you have to assume the older guy will probably start working and he knows how to build stuff. So, yeah, I agree with you. There's some questionable choices in this one. It is questionable, but I think it also sort of speaks to the fact that Chicken really just couldn't relate, not only relate to anyone, but he couldn't at least convince anyone 
not to vote for him. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, you're right. Like, if, if you just sit here and approach the first vote on paper, like, who is benefiting the tribe the most, maybe that's how you're doing it. But I think the problem is, is that PG campaigned for herself. You know, and even though PG was rubbing some people the wrong way, she was out there talking to people about votes. And you just saw Chicken just go up and go, I'm just going to write Ashley because she's sick. You know, and it wasn't, hey, yep. what are you doing? What are you thinking? He's just like, I'm going to vote Ashley. And that's, that was his whole thing. And it's like, that's a real easy person to lift out. Now, I don't follow the behind-the-scenes stuff as much as I used to in China's one. I, <clears throat> I wasn't really listening to the interviews or stuff. Is there, was there any more to the story why Chicken was voted out other than what we saw on the screen? I'm just curious. Paul might know this. Do you remember? No, I don't really remember uh, much else to the story. What I do know about Chicken is that he said in a lot of his pregame stuff that, one, he had never left the state of Virginia before coming to do Survivor China. <laughs> and, um, so yes, yeah, so not only had he never left the country, he never le- left the state. Um, and that he said in a lot of his pregame stuff that he had already won by having gone to China, just leaving Virginia and, and seeing what he had seen. He said anything he got you know, beyond landing in China was a bonus. So... Uh, he was more than happy to uh, go to his carnival and get the boot three days later. <laughs> so they could have so, legitimately like driven him in a van to like Seattle and dropped him off and say, "Hey, chicken, this is China. Have fun." Yes. In modern so, Seattle, Shanghai. Yeah. So chicken basically won life, just like Gene. He's he's like Gene in the game of life. He's the winner. Yes. Right. Oh, I hate her. <laughs> so chicken. A lot of people don't realize chicken was from a very similar area to Big Tom. I mean, they were. I believe the Rich Valley is this. They're from the same general geographic area, even within Virginia. I like how Steve goes by chicken, but Tom doesn't go by goat. <laughs> That's good. That's fantastic. I'm going to call him that from now on. He's always goat. goat. Yeah, I'm going to have to stop calling Russell Hans that. All right, so we lose chicken. Chicken says, damn. It's the damn herd around the world, and that's about it. So we go into episode two. This is the. Uh, Dave is crazy. Dave is now the leader of Jean Hu, and uh, I'm sure Jay will have a lot of fun with this because Dave is going to start making a fire pit. This is, I mean, it's not even the biggest narrative. Like the narrative that comes out of most of this is just Dave is crazy, and Dave is just the worst, one of the worst leaders ever, and 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 that's fair and that's valid. But as you can see, Dave sort of they wake up the next morning, and you know they basically talk about it, and Dave is like, "Look, I'm going to step up, and we're going to do things." And he even says. Look, there are some things we just need to do and we need to do well. And he talks about the fire pit. You know, they need to redo the shelter and rethink because it got rained on and there was water that came in and all that sort of stuff. But Dave's like, we need to make a fire pit. And it, it's one of those things where, you know, we're, we don't want to make a little one or a temporary one. This is one that we just want to get right. And what I love is that it seems like every time they go back to Jahu until Dave gets voted off, He's working on the fire pit and improving the fire pit. It's like it's literally his Mona Lisa. Like he he's just <laughs> over there working on this fire pit. And I, I got to tell you, it's probably one of the sturdiest and best fire pits that's ever been built on Survivor. I'm not even going to lie about it. But it's like at the same time, it's like, Dave, people are dying. You need to light a fire. And he's just like, no, no, the pit's not done. We're going to do this right. And, and it's just. It's really sad where he's basically like, I don't want to make a temporary pit. This is something we need to do first and right. And I'm sitting there going, like, you could totally do a temporary pit while you, you, make, know, you make one. We had, you know, in, in Amazon, we have Matthew with the machete happen in, in the middle of the game. And we have arguably, you could compare this to like Bruce with the firewood. But I don't think we've ever seen someone Butch, snap. Butch, get it right. 
Butch, sorry. I don't know. Bruce, I was thinking... I've Bruce has been building he, fires for 30 years. Exactly. I was thinking about his life experience. But I don't think we've ever seen someone on camera snap on day four. Dave is like... He goes off the deep end here. And I feel like almost everything you know Dave says here could almost be said through like gritted teeth. Because he is patronizing his tribe so much of like, you don't understand... We need to make the fire pit so we can have a fire constantly throughout the day. And I could, he just, it's, it's like amazing to just see like first episode. Yes, he does embrace PG probably a little too hard, but I feel like he's a relatively normal level headed person. And then that immediately goes once chicken's gone and he's given some sort of form of leadership. As you said, Jay, he is so centric on this. I mean, this, this is his white whale basically is this fire pit. You know, a lot of people gave me grief for not giving Dave an entry on the Funny 115, like not writing about Dave. Now I totally realize they're correct. I sh- totally should have written about Dave in the fire pit. I totally dropped the ball on that one. Do you like when he uh, shuts down Jamie for uh, wishing too hard because she wanted to eat? <laughs> she wanted to make if a you, meal by the end of the day, and he said you were wishing too hard. If you pass out and die, do not fall on the fire pit. She's like, shouldn't I wish? Like, can't I wish? And he's just like, not for that. <laughs> Where's your messiah? I should wish hard. And it's like, oh, he just, and the thing is, is that he's right. Like, he builds it up, and he's building all the stones, and he's trying to build it so it's constantly covered, and it's got a ventilation. Like, you could see as it's building, like, he's not even explaining it to the camera, but you could see, if you're looking at it, what he's doing. But by the same token, you need to just have a little place where there's a fire so that you could boil water and shit. And he's just like, no, no, we've got to do this and go. And I mean, he just he loses his damn mind over this fire pit. And it's it's fantastic. I mean, it's just great TV. We need a chimney so Santa can come down and give us presents. <laughs> there, there's a scene and I'm, I'm totally sort of skipping ahead in the episode. And I know we're not this far, but, you know, he and Ashley get into it in this episode where she's just like, look, we need to get things done. We need to do this stuff. And Dave's just like, how many fire pits have you built, sweetie? And I'm, uh, I, if I were actually just looking at me, how many have you built? Because the answer is not one yet. <laughs> but I'm close. Five eights. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Palpatine team with a Death Star. All right, here we go. So we got, yeah. So <laughs> Dave is, is taking on the fire pit duty, much to everyone else's chagrin. And uh, now we cut over to Faye Long, and we immediately start with a scene of Jean Robert snoring, which is going to be pretty much his storyline for the next couple episodes. Jean Robert yeah. outlines, and this is, again, you know, Jean Robert is going to be the first in a long line of poker players that play Survivor. And poker players have a very dubious success rate on this show. And Jean Robert talks about how, you know, they sort of outline that he's lazy and that they see him snoring and there's fun confessionals about that. And uh, is this where Courtney has the fun John Robert snoring confessional or is that later? Well, she calls him the D student of our tribe right now. When (laughs) when she's voting for him later on, she'll say, you know, your snoring is like someone choking a walrus. And she like imitates it. And I mean, it's really good. And then you can see him and he's just like, Oh, I'm so tired. And then he talks about, he says, this is a ploy by the way, which a, is it? And B, okay, so let's let's say that it is. And he's just talking about how, like, I'm just going to be really lazy at the start, so then later I'm going to contribute more, and they'll think, wow, he really made a turnaround. And I'm sitting there going, like, 
first impressions kill on Survivor. <laughs> Absolutely kill. I just feel like, you know, okay, s- slow playing at the beginning of, of a poker tournament where you're at a table and maybe you fold a couple hands even if you get some decent cards and sort of slow playing. Maybe that works because he talks about how he likes to, you know, sort of come back and, and sort of build up a big stack over time. But it's like, this is Survivor. Like, they've literally just labeled you lazy and a malcontent. You're, it's going to be really hard to shake that. And just, you know, <laughs> gathering a little bit of wood every once in a while is not going to shake it for you. And it's just like, John Rare, I don't think you read that right. My favorite part is at, is at the end of this sequence, he goes, I can only go up from here. That's not good, John Robert. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's your early proof? <laughs> what's your early strategy, John Robert? Well, I'm gonna not do any work, make sure I'm an easy target, and I'm gonna make sure no one wants to align with me. That's my day three strategy. That, but that, that really is his strategy in his pregame stuff. He was talking about how in the beginning he's not gonna do anything and really be in the shadows. He's gonna rise to power, you know, by day six or something. Yeah, but you're supposed to be in the shadows, not very visibly be the laziest one. Oh boy! Yeah, Jean Robert. Jean well, it's, it's, it's almost like he's hatching a plan, but he's telling everyone that he's hatching the plan as he's hatching the plan. <laughs> so he's like, "I'm going to stay in the shadows," but he's like, "Hey, everybody, I'm staying in the shadows. <laughs> Don't look at me. I'm in the shadows." <laughs> <laughs> I love Jean Robert. Jean Robert is one of those you really appreciate him the more you watch a season. He's just hilariously inept. But again, he's there's enough competence in there that you can get why he's a good poker player he's just not good at survivor oh yeah and i've seen you know i don't watch a lot of poker but i mean when poker was sort of on tv and you couldn't avoid it he was in some of those tournaments and he does really well like i think he's a pretty successful poker player all all being all things considered and he's a bright individual and but and and the thing about it is, is that he's you know i i i I don't think that I would ever want to like be friends with Jean Robert. I don't think that you know that is something that needs to happen. But ten out of ten would cast again. This guy is survivor gold because it's just he can't he can't get out of his own way. He's great and he's so just like sometimes they just edit someone to be the villain. You don't have to with him. He just is kind of the villain, and that's what I love about him. He's like he's not even trying to be anything but. You know, I'm kind of the manipulative poker player. I'm the bad guy out here. Like, I just, I just love someone who, who owns up to being that character. Well, and, and you put it into perspective. One of the people that he's going to clash with over these first couple of episodes is Courtney. And Courtney is already, like, you know, blown off a guy, in a monk inside a Buddhist temple. You know, and has basically talked about how she's this impatient New Yorker. And so, like, right off the bat, whenever you see, like, impatient New Yorker, you're like, I'm going to not necessarily like this person. And, you know, I'm not saying that Courtney was super likable, but it's like Jean Robert made, you know, a battle with Courtney and Jean Robert. Jean Robert is the more unpleasant person. Yeah. And let's point out that she was a villain on Heroes versus Villains. And she was the good guy against yeah. Jean Robert. She is a villain on Heroes versus Villains. She's going to say that somebody sucks at life later in this, <laughs> in, the, in this season. And yet she is the good guy in this battle with Jean Robert. <laughs> Oh my god! Well, it's also important to notice that outside of the Jean Robert stuff, an actually really important event ha- event happens in this Fei Long sequence as well, which is Tyler and Amanda, who I would argue is probably the strongest alliance in the game this season, uh, decides to finally get together, and they say like, "Okay, we need like a third, basically a fall guy, a mouthpiece," and so they go to Aaron, and this will actually have an effect in the next episode when Fei Long has to go to Tribal Council. But this is where the uh, Todd and Amanda and Aaron as sort of like a third wheel alliance forms. This was Paul's favorite scene in the uh, season, I bet. When Amanda Number pulls one, into power. Baby. Number That's one. Right. Yep. 
so we can see all of Amanda's uh, charisma and her star quality in the scene where Todd basically says, all right, here's how it's going to go. But I'm going like, to give Amanda credit here. And I know that Mario doesn't want to hear that, but I'm going to give Amanda credit in the sense that, okay, maybe she's not the most charismatic person uh, and things like that. But Amanda, I think just as you're saying Jean Rivera has good reads on people, which I feel is dubious at best. Um, <laughs> Amanda has a good read on Survivor. You know, like she, she not only does she hook up with Todd and that's a good move, but, you know, you're going to see the Todd Amanda alliance talk through things, not just in this episode, but in future episodes. She knows what's going on and she actually, you know, thinks about good decisions and, and makes good decisions. I mean, Amanda goes far in the, in most of the seasons of Survivor that she's going to end up playing. And I don't think that it's just an accident or it's just, ah, she was just there and that's what happened. Like Amanda sees the game pretty well. And you're going to see that even starting in this scene and moving forward. All right, Tim, edit out everything Jay just said. <laughs> no, I, I will begrudgingly admit that, yes, Amanda is good at Survivor. Yeah, I think she's. I mean, thank you, Mario. I, I would. Fuck I would, you, Paul. I, I know we were talking about like the natural survivors when we were talking about people like Ian and Ozzy, but I feel like Amanda's a different natural survivor in that, like, I think she's just very well set for this game. She's reasonably athletic. She's reasonably sociable. She's reasonably strategic. She's reasonable in all these areas. It's just you know when she gets to the final day, she's going to flounder every opportunity she has, and the third time. She's just gonna, you know, get be the, the victim of her side just being incredibly stupid. So I feel like Amanda does have a really good grasp on this game. It's a good opportunity to point out as well. This season was pretty heavily spoiled, but one of the big spoilers was that Amanda won this season. And so yeah. watching it from an edgic perspective, a lot of people were like really hyping Amanda up, looking at these scenes and being like, Oh yeah, this is Amanda's big scene towards her winners in it. And so when it comes to the very end and you know, looking at the final three, you could say, oh, Taz has like the total Boston Rob-esque edit of, yes, he was the mastermind all along, but nobody's going to vote for him because he burned a bunch of bridges. But when Todd wins in the end, surprisingly, and I'm sure we'll get to that many, many hours later, it was a huge surprise, especially because Amanda, you know, was sort of the more mild-mannered of the pair. So people thought, aside from the spoiler, that she had the win locked up. Yeah. Even And I, again, I don't follow spoilers, but even I remember people saying at the time, well, Amanda wins this season. And it was like, common knowledge to the point that there people knew she was on the next season too. fans versus fair uh, uh, all-stars to micronesia and so yeah so yeah that, that's one thing as you watch the season you have to keep in mind from a perspective you know in retrospect here that most people thought amanda won this season it was pretty much common knowledge hey, all right let's, so let's go to a reward challenge Hold on, we have to talk about, we go back to Jean Hu oh. and Dave, because everyone's mad, they all want to eat food, and Dave won't let them, because he's still making his barbecue pit. And he, and he hoses Jamie in mud. I completely hosed you. Yes, alright. Again, that we you think we already talked about this before, but we have to mention it, because it happens again. Dave is still making the barbecue pit. Alright. He's not even going to finish this episode, by the way, just so you know. like He's going to be working on it in the next episode. Well, like, you know, it's now it's... to our fashion correspondent, Mike Bloom. How do you think Ashley was doing with that black bandana wrapped around her chest? I mean, we were, I mean, you know, I feel like the censors who have probably already used on Amanda in the next challenge, they're probably looking for loan money in order to get Ashley done. But I think she did an OK job. I, you know, I'm, I'm maybe, you know, maybe she forgot her bra as well. Uh, and so maybe, or maybe it was in solidarity with Jamie that she decided to improvise. But you know, I think it's better than, you know, PG's earrings or Frosty's little asshole hat. <laughs> I don't think those Thanks are, for that, Mike. I don't really think those are moving. But, like, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you can, you can see that 
you could really see that like Dave Dave is talking even that scene where he hoses Jamie where like you know even Jamie's just basically like hey Dave can we eat please we're starving <laughs> you know and Dave's like no we cannot but he just like smashes that stone down and just gets on he's like oh dude totally and what I love is that she doesn't like wash it off like she's just down by the by the creek there with Sharia and like Ashley comes over and Jamie's just like look what he did yeah it's mud and I'm like you're living in mud it's okay fine okay you know, it, you know, they're just talking about how Dave is just ridiculous. All right, so we go episode two reward challenge. This is the one where they have the giant ball in the mud and you have to roll it through a goal and it's basically beat the crap out of each other until one team is too tired to stop you from rolling the ball across the goal. There's a theme. Yeah. There's two themes in the ch- early challenges of Survivor China. One is Jean who can't do puzzles. The other one is it's really physical. Yeah, yeah. it's very muddy and very physical. Nice no, I mean, and this, wet in the this is what this is probably Rose. one of the like shortest aired challenges. I think this lasts for a grand total of what like four minutes, just because Fei Long pretty much demolishes them again. They Amanda pointed out in the previous episode when you have Aaron and you have James, and you know John Robert for all of his laziness is basically a big wall. And then the challenge where it's just run with this ball as fast as you can until the end and basically push people out of your way. I think Fei Long had this one locked up from the get go. One of the things that always makes me laugh is, you know, Jeff Probst, you know, narrates these challenges. He does it all the time. It's good for the viewers at home. People don't seem to mind it, whatever. But in a challenge like this, there's a scene where, like, uh, Jamie has a free shot where she's rolling the ball and nobody's stopping her. And this is where Jeff Probst's dick moment calls in, where Jeff can call it out so the other people know, Jamie has a free shot. No one's blocking her. Like, he'll just totally... Just, just so the other tribe will notice what's going on and go stop her. It's just one of those things where, you know, the ho- the host shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, so anyway, uh, basically, you know, the, the first group, it's basically they, they go out. Uh, each, each team is sending out three people. And then Jeff basically, you know, they have this convoluted sort of lever that he pulls that gets this gigantic ball to, like, go down a little chute and then into the mud. And so there's two balls out there. And basically there's a big mud pit that's kind of up to their, you know, mid-thighs or whatever. And the balls go into the mud. And then you have to kind of roll them through one of the big gates. You only need to do one in each round. Just whoever can roll one of the balls past a gate scores a point. And it's first to two. I don't know how many they actually did, but on TV it says first to two. So that's what we're going with. But, you know, basically the challenge goes and they just are wrestling and pulling each other and they eventually just pull each other's clothes off, which, you know, fun for the censors. Before there was Sharia pulling off Sugar's top, there was, or before Sandra pulled off Sugar's top, it was Sharia pulling down Amanda's buff, uh, giving her the nickname Bluranda. And of course, another like Jeff Probe's dick moment here where he says, Amanda with no top on scores for Fei Long. <laughs> it's really good though, because you could see them in the, in, in the moment. You, you could see the, the wrestling going, and, and Amanda with her top off, pull, you know, pulls the ball over the over the goal and scores for Fei Long. And, you know, Jeff does the Amanda without a top. And I think it was like, is it Aaron or something? Or is John Robert just like, all right, Amanda, put your top back on. You won the point. And you can see Amanda like then look down and go, oh, my gosh. And then she pulls the top on and says something like, my mother is going to kill me. And it's just a fun little moment where like, you know, they were she was so into it. She didn't even realize that that her top was down. <laughs> I refuse to believe that John Robert would tell Amanda to put her top back on. Oh, John Robert. All right, yeah, so Fei Long wins the two points in a row very quickly. They win the reward, which is, for this one is fishing gear and a fishing boat. And there's a little twist involved in this challenge, which is new for this season, if I recall, 
where uh, they get to kidnap one person until the next immunity challenge. And this person will come and live at their camp until the next challenge. And Fei Long goes and they pick Jamie. We would like Jamie to come with and live with us. And if I recall from my notes, it was because Jamie is a ray of sunshine over there. And they wanted to take away their ray of sunshine. A spot of sunshine. A spot of sunshine. That was it. Yeah, because Jamie was, remember, Jamie was the only one that, you know, was wishing for food to come to them. So you take it away, and now you just have Dave basically yelling at everyone about how the only positive person on their tribe has, has temporarily disappeared. <laughs> and let's, let's keep in mind for our survivor vocabulary words, ray of sunshine loosely translates to the cute girl without a bra. <laughs> so just for those of you playing along at home. Well, I think what's um, you know interesting to note here is that this is kind of this is um, the season's alternative to Exile Island, and I think this is another strong point for the season is that we don't spend any time, you know, we don't lose five minutes of an episode of watching Jamie go to Exile Island by herself and sit there and not interact with anyone. We get Jamie having interactions with people back at camp, and I think that's you know another strong suit that the season has is it really it continues to develop the characters rather than focus on the twist of the game. Because two things happen in this next scene. One is that, you know, Aaron gets in a fight with, uh, with somebody they, uh, on there, don't they? Um, John Robert. Yeah. John Robert, John Robert and Aaron, like they're arguing back and forth. And, you know, I think Courtney was just basically like, Can you keep it down in front of the spy for like two seconds, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it, which is a good scene. And then the yeah. other one is the, is the whole idol thing, which uh, someone wants to get into. Well, yeah, first so, we have to say first we have to say that you know they they have to watch Jamie at their camp because Todd says in the Art of War it says to steal your opponent's things and and Todd starts mentioning that to his tribe and Leslie says oh Todd's a bright guy I want to be on Todd's side this will come into play later. Um, but the, so the big twist is that Jamie is given a clue which Jeff Probst very you know uh, blatantly points out open in private. Uh, it, it's so, written on there. It's written on there, see? So she does, and it basically says, here's a clue to a hidden immunity idol located at Fei Long's camp. You must pick one person to give this clue to. And I really like this concept because we've seen Exile Island, as Paul said, the past three seasons. And, you know, they've, they've varied on, you know, whether the winning tribe gets to pick someone or the losing tribe. But that's basically the only intertribal interaction that we've seen. And Survivor really didn't do too much intertribal interaction outside of, like, the mixer challenges in Amazon and All Stars, or when they lived on one beach in Thailand for a little bit. But I thought it was a really great permutation that we really hadn't seen before, which is like we'll see it, especially uh, in Token Chains with the Exile Alliance, which is like you have an opportunity right now in the beginning stages of the game to reach out to someone on the opposite side and make bonds. And but in doing this, you essentially are doing that. And we'll see how it it's used to both people's advantages later on. But I thought going right out of the gate, it was a really interesting concept in terms of fostering bonds on someone on the other tribe starting at, like, day four. Yeah, no, I totally agree. This is a great way to force, you know, people to start working together after the merger, trying to prevent pagongings, obviously. And I, th- I agree. I think this was a fantastic twist. I, I wish they would do this more often. So anyway, uh, Jamie, just so you know, at, at sort of at the end of her tenure here at uh, Fei Long, she basically uh, chooses Leslie to give uh, the clue to, which Leslie basically was like, hey, I was losing faith in the game and the man upstairs provided. So, hey, good stuff. <laughs> this is a great moment right here. I just love the way that they edit this where Leslie's breaking down. You know, she doesn't have access to her Bible. It's very hard out here. She feels like she's an outcast. She's starting to lose it. And Jamie's like, huh, I'll give the clue to her because she's a disaster. <laughs> so 
<laughs> so she gives her the clue, and then like that's the reason Jamie gives it to her because Leslie's probably going home soon anyway. Then Jamie will be the only person with the clue, and Leslie's like, "This was a gift from God. The Lord gave me this clue." <laughs> it's just funny looking at the the motivations for the two characters. But what's funny scene. is that you know this this is why Leslie is a great pick and a good cast for Survivor, but also oh Leslie, you know how like you know you, you sort of. Look at a season of Survivor. Yes, there were 16 people that got, that got to go on Survivor China, but 16 people did not have the opportunity to win Survivor China. You know, they, they pick yeah. people knowing that they're not going to win. And th- here's Exhibit A, or, or many, a long list of exhibits why Leslie is a great pick for Survivor, but also they're going to win Survivor, is that she gets this gift. Jamie's like, oh, she's sort of a wreck. She's breaking down. I'm going to give her this gift. So she gets the gift for the idol clue and she tells Todd. <laughs> yeah. But again, this goes back to the earlier scene that Leslie thinks, wow, Todd is a really smart guy. I want to work with him. And Leslie's like, I got this clue. I'll give it to Todd. Now we'll work together. So yeah, it, I mean, it all kind of comes back to Todd being bright. I also like how Leslie is this devout Christian and the person she confides in the most is the gay Mormon flight attendant. <laughs> hey, she's a very liberal Christian. Very open-minded. <laughs> so... So, yeah, yeah, Todd. Todd's like, what the hell? Someone just gave me a clue? Why I wouldn't give the clue to anybody. Why would they give it to me? Yeah, I always like it when people... I was noticing this. I was playing a, a, a sort of complicated board game with some of my family, and I noticed that I get upset when... Not, not when I'm losing or winning, but when people don't act rationally as, as to what, I, what is going on, I start to really sort of get rankled by it and it's like i think todd is sort of the same way where he's just basically like okay you get a clue to a hidden immunity idol you work on it yourself you try to find the idol but leslie just gives him the clue and it's not like he got super upset by it. it's a huge gift for him but i mean he's just basically sitting there going like why would you why would you do this why why is this something you would do i love that todd has the same reaction that jamie does like so only leslie and i know about the clue if i vote her out i'll be the only one who knows about the clue yeah like, so Leslie actually probably uh, speeds up her demise by doing this. Exactly. Iro- ironically, by trusting in Todd, she basically signed her own fate. <laughs> Spoiler alert, Leslie's going to do a lot of things to expedite her exit <laughs> from this game. Yeah, I agree with you. She is a perfect early game player. Give her about four episodes, she'll deliver. Yeah, she, she lasts three episodes. That was enough. All right, we're going into the episode two immunity challenge. This is where they have to take a log and smash it through some walls and run it through a puzzle and then basically run it into a gong at the end. Yeah, uh, yes, yet another ancient, very China-specific challenge. Yeah, the, the ancient Chinese puzzle log. Yeah, that's heard what I was so thinking. Much he's, about like, he's like, you're going to need to use a puzzle log, and I was sitting there going, like, is that a thing? It's in the art of war, Jay. Oh boy. <laughs> Chapter one, putting the pole in the right shape. Chapter two, the ancient puzzle logs of yore. Chapter three, the massive pyre, fire pit. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. Chapter four, using large chopsticks to carry little balls down a sand pit. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to say this right now. Not that I'm like the biggest expert in Chinese culture because I'm not. But I think that for, you know, just standard white male in America, I actually know a lot more about Chinese culture than a lot of people uh, under my similar circumstances. And what's funny about this season is this season is so immersed in actual Chinese culture. And then there like horrific stereotypical stuff that survivor does as well, where I can't reconcile the two. Like it's either horrifically good or horrifically terrible. It's horrifically cheesy. That's how I look at it. Yeah. All right. That's fine. And, and with this, with the puzzle log, that's fine. You know, the battering ram is fine, but uh, okay. All right. The chopsticks and the fireworks. We love those. Oh boy. 
throw pot stickers at each other. In oh Portuguese. boy. Yeah, well, well, we'll get to Ninja Stars later on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. So episode though the immunity challenge here in episode two. Uh, basically, <laughs> Fei Long destroys Jean Hu yet again because surprise, Jean Hu has not eaten any food because they have no fire. They're all basically collapsing. Dave almost dies right there in the challenge. So James and Fei Long destroy them with the puzzle log and all. Yeah, it's you know it, it, it's a you can see it in the opening credits for it the 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 battering ram part of it but it's funny because Fei Long just they they crush through there and it's like Jean who is not only not doing well in the physical part and I mean you can see that part where like Dave's in the front and like he's out of rhythm and he can't even like hold it and like Frosty has to go up and go Dave go to the back and like Dave can't even get find the back of the battering ram but like Phelong gets to the puzzle section first, so then it's like, oh no, Jean Hu needs to catch up in the puzzle section. Yeah, not happening. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, Jean Hu loses again. And you know, if only they had had chicken for that puzzle log. Chicken, sh- should we move it to the right or to the left? <laughs> well, uh, I'm just gonna. I'm, you, you tell me. Yeah. Both of those are good options. <laughs> oh yeah. boy. So, yeah, Jean who loses, and again, this is exactly what I wrote about or said in the last episode, that there's almost no strategy talk. They don't convolute the episode. They just go back to camp, and Jean who's like, well, it's going to be Dave or it's going to be Ashley. We've got to break up the uh, conflict, so one of them's going tonight, and boom, boom cut right to Tribal Council. Uh, before we jump into Tribal Council, I don't think we, we touched on it before. Not, not often do uh, um, my previous studies of, uh, of German language and culture come, come to uh, play out on Survivor, but do you notice in one scene, it was a little bit earlier in the episode, when Dave and Ashley are fighting, and Dave grabs the underneath his eye and pulls, his, pulls the skin on his eye and is making yeah. this kind of weird thing at Ashley? Mm-hmm. And that is a German gesture to mean, like, wink, wink, yeah, right. <laughs> oh, interesting. Because I like I watch some anime sometimes. And I know I know they do that there too, and I'm not sure if it has the same meaning as it does in German. Yeah, well, then I also know on on one of the uh, during the recap episode um, where it's you know the whatever the where they have the bonus clips there he says a, a line in German about open your eyes. I feel like he might have had some experience living in Germany or something because of those two things. So sorry, only, I'm just bring my my background if, knowledge to this, if only, to this if, podcast. If, if only that fishing boat that comes in a couple episodes brought German children, I'm sure Dave would have had a great time instead of John right. Robert. He could have whipped out his uh, his German there. I, I also love before we get to travel council how Dave like apologizes, but it's like the worst apology ever because it's like he's like, "I'm sorry, I feel partly responsible for some of my failings." Uh, I just got out of rhythm, really. And you're like, no, you, you you couldn't swing the thing. Like he blamed the fact that he couldn't, you know, go and 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 swing the battering ram on the fact that he was out of rhythm on the swings. I'm like, a, they weren't really swinging it some of the time, and b, you couldn't hold on to the thing. That isn't I was out of rhythm. That was I was too weak. All right. <clears throat> so with that we lose uh, Ashley. Yep. I have no thoughts on Ashley whatsoever. I actually, like Mike said, she was kind of famous going into Survivor. I was, you know, watching this. Um, I had the song going today, and my wife Alice came. She was kind of half watching, and she said, "Oh yeah, you like Ashley, right?" And I said, "I love Ashley," and it's a little <laughs> bit like kind of irrational, and I can't really explain it too much. But I just really think if she would have got a longer time, she'd have been really good. I thought she gave great interviews. Um, you had entertainment with her as far as conflict. I think she kind of got a raw deal, and that she would have been a much better character had she lasted longer. All right, Paul, which which part of Bozeman is Ashley from? 
no, that's Amanda. That's the other. Uh, oh, that's sorry. the other irrational liking of a of a female character. But I, I want to ask my bloom. How would you rate this second boot Ashley to other second boot Ashleys we've had on the show? I mean, I'd say she's above that line of the one that you were referring to. I think she has the argument with Dave, which is significant enough. As we said, she a reputation going in. Now, I had to give her the bonus points because she does reference Zoolander in her last voting confessional. So I definitely put her above the line of Miss Ashby. They also have the giant natural breasts, both of them. <laughs> yes, very true. <laughs> Oh, yeah, the big the big guy was provided with both of them, right? <laughs> Leslie's. Leslie's John, I'm sure John Robert was was all like horrified when Ashley left because he, that lessened his chances of being able to grab some boobs at some co- point in time during this <laughs> yeah. show. He's like, I'm snuggling with Courtney. I could have had her. Well, actually, though, that was actually James's first uh, crush to to go because in James's pregame, we'll talk about that famous quote here soon. But he says before the show, he has. Three girls fit into the three types of women he normally goes for. Um, one of them being petite girls. Wonder who that is. He has a thing for Asian girls. Wonder who that is. And then also has a thing for a tattooed chicks. What about middle-aged lunch ladies with a mullet? That was not a top three. I think that was that, that was <laughs> fourth, the dark horse. Fourth or fifth, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So yeah, anybody anything out have any more to say about Ashley? Rip no, and I mean, peppers, Sh- Ashley. Sharia gets into it a little bit with Dave here, which again is setting up their major conflict over the next couple episodes, which means like they de- they were definitely saying, okay, we're going to vote off Ashley to mitigate the conflict between Dave and the rest of the tribe. But it only seems like Sharia just stepped up in Ashley's place. She's like, <laughs> did you not, did you not, did you not hear what just came out of my mouth? <laughs> <laughs> Paul with the sassy black woman voice. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so episode three, we are going into the fall of Sister Christian here. All right, we open episode three with typical, a shot of Jean Robert snoring, which, again, more, more of a theme. We'll see that happening a lot. And this is the episode where Jean Robert has been kind of distasteful and icky up to this point. And this is the episode where he gets flat out date rapey. Yeah, he starts- such, <laughs> such a bad boy, right? I mean, I saw, I saw a guy masturbating on the subway earlier today. He was a total bad boy, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Jean Robert is basically just a creeper and a uh, scumbag in the shelter that he always wants to have the women next to him so he can curl up against them. And that's his thing, that the girls must sleep next to him so he can stay warm. And they do not appreciate this for some reason. And then we get the good confessional from Courtney basically saying, like, Jean Robert's like, oh, I need Amanda and Courtney to keep me warm. And she's like, look at me, I'm seven pounds. I can't even keep myself warm. Yeah. I- I also like, you know, as much as we may disparage Leslie, I love her. She actually has a pretty funny quote here where she's like, you know, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the silk shirt and the no underwear. That did it for me. <laughs> I'm going to say that's a big yes, Leslie. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So this is the major theme in this early part of this episode that John Robert is a creeper and none of the girls want to sleep anywhere near him ever. Yes, even uh, Leslie. Leslie, who says she feels icky snuggling up to a man in her bra, which, again, very Christian. And what else do we learn here? We also learn that uh, this is the crab, right? They catch a crab, and they argue over uh, how, to, how to eat it. And James drops the knowledge on us that he, before the season, he went to Barnes & Noble to read about survival skills. This is skills. so good. Oh, I right. love this uh, for a myriad of reasons. One of them is a little one, but it's James making So basically, Phelan catches a crab. A crab 
So they get back, and Courtney and James are of the mindset of like, okay, let's make crab stock and put the rice in it, so that way, like, everyone gets a little bit of crab. But John Robert and Aaron have this perspective of, no, we're big, we're hungry. You know, the, the, the crab is so small, it won't have any taste. We need to, like, chop up the crab and distribute it, which basically means I'm hungry, I want to have more crab than have it just, you know, dissolve through stock. And James uses this term of, like, you won't even get half a crab. You're going to get a damn crab toenail, which is just such a funny term to me. And, again, you talked before, Mario, about how, like, James makes these odd comparisons, and he has this way with words that is just so surprising. And this is one example that he, he pulls out the term crab toenail. It's a DCT, a damn crab toenail. Yes. And, that, but again, then he went to Barnes & Noble. This is how he knows all this stuff, because James went to Barnes & Noble before the season. He's the only yeah. one who did that. And he also uses the term, like, not that his tribe is stupid, but that they keep bumping their heads, which, again, is the weirdest <laughs> way I've heard someone call someone dull ever, is that they keep bumping their head. <laughs> oh, boy. I don't he remember says, that. He, he talks about it. He's like, am I the only one that went to Barnes & Noble before here? He's like... Because he says, I'm not, I'm not really an outdoors person. I don't like the outdoors. I don't even like paper or plastic cups. <laughs> which, which, what kind of cups is he drinking out of? Well, not those. Skulls. <laughs> Skulls. <laughs> but then he's like, he's like, I feel like I went to Barnes & Noble for four hours and I'm more outdoorsy than all these guys. Which is, it's like fair and not fair at the same time. Because, you know, James has that... You know, he, he's a grave digger, which, you know, he, get, he goes outside and he digs graves, which is sort of an outdoor activity. But, you know, he, as he said, I think he's an indoor cat. He likes to read and, you know, do, you know, those sorts of things and work out. But James has that thing where, yes, he has this incredibly muscular sort of chiseled frame, but he's doing outdoors manual labor work. So being outdoors and doing the sort of camp life stuff is not going to tax him on on a level as other gym rats maybe in some way but you know james is intimating that beforehand he didn't really have a lot of outdoor you know boy scout skills but he's learned some and it's like he's like no one else knows anything and it's just it's such a unique way to put it it's just so james someone should explain to paul barnes and noble is a large books chain dude paul's living in chicago he knows (laughs) (laughs) all right making sure all right so we cut back to john who and Dave is obsessing over the fire pit. <laughs> it's <laughs> not done. He's still working on it. But he is like, if he was at like a seven last episode, he is at an 11 this episode. First, when PG says like, hey, you know, uh, uh, Dave, you shouldn't, you shouldn't probably expend your energy again because you got worn out. And he just goes, PG? And makes like a kissy noise at her. And then not he's condescending ha- at all. And then, he has this one, and then he has this one <laughs> confessional where he's basically complaining because uh, there's this whole thing about how, like, while he's lying around, the tribe's just sort of discussing about, like, okay, you know, what should I, how should we put the walk in the fire? And Dame just storms off and grabs a brick. <laughs> and then he gives this confessional where he just says through this gritted teeth and crazy eyes, he goes, it's not rocket science. <laughs> and you can just feel the seething anger from this man. <laughs> the art of war says the walk sits on a brick. In, in one way, you can sort of identify with Dave, which is why I like think, think this is so good, is because you can sort of see a lot of angles in the sense that they were basically like, oh, how do we put it on the fire? And he's like, a brick. I'll go get one because he was, you know, dealing with bricks because, you know, his master pit is not done and he's been using these bricks. So he goes over and gets one and they're basically like, well, they were talking about it. And he just gets up and goes and gets one. They were like, well, there's one right here. 
And he's like, well, it took me like no time to go over there and get the brick. And their point was that, you know, he's expending energy to go over there, walk, get the brick, carry it from one place to the other. But on the other hand, it's, it is sort of an interesting thing to think about in Survivor if you're out there and, you know, everything's got to be talked about and everything's got to be split evenly and everything sort of has to get discussed. And it's like, in one way, you can see that someone getting frustrated with that and just saying, just go lift something and bring it over there. It's not that hard when you just do it. I love but the fact Dave, that later, so on, yeah, later on, John Who will get the reputation as being the fun tribe where everyone's having fun. Clearly not. It's such a weird dichotomy. And again, it's, it's what you're showing. Like what we're showing is Dave's personality and the fact that he's not getting along with everyone. Sort of the fact that PG is, you know, trying to fit in. And you can see that Eric and Jamie are sort of, you know, sort of of a same mind and, and sort of being together. So you're seeing all this sort of setup. But you're right, Mario, in the sense that like every time we go to Jean Hu, Dave is going crazy on people. <laughs> and yet everyone from the outside is like, God, they're so happy and joyous. <laughs> and you're like, they're what? Well, to be fair, when Leslie comes and visits them later, it might be when the fire pit's done. So once the fire pit's done, maybe there's no more conflict. But it, is it done? Like It's, <laughs> it's never done. done. It's never, done. Really it's never done. done. Okay, there's going to be an expansion on it, and we have to build a patio <laughs> to go with it. <laughs> it's like the Great Pyramid. It's never quite done. It'll be eons and eons until that thing is finished. I could see like Dave getting home from Survivor and then just going to his backyard and going, I know. Well, I hear I, there, I there, there are <laughs> no now two... There are now two things that can, see, that can be seen from space. It's the Great Wall of China and Dave's fire pit located about a mile outside of the Great Wall of China. I could just see like Dave coming home from work every day at, you know, being a former model or whatever his work is. And like just looking at his backyard and looking at the pile of bricks going, I have to I have to continue my work. Can you imagine that kid if he had like Legos when he was a little kid? It must have been insane. The towers he would have built the fire pits. The plural of Legos is Lego, actually. Oh, Mom, sorry I hosed you in Legos there. <laughs> Lego, I apologize, Jay. Yeah, get it right. But um, and we had Douchey Paul, now we have Douchey Jay correcting yeah, well. our grammar. <laughs> Welcome to the club, K. Garnet Garnet. So do we need, um, is there anything else going on here, or do we get to the challenge? Let's Other than the, the fire challenge. Out. The the ancient Chinese tradition of where two warring factions would park boats on a dock and then wrestle each other. Yes, this is the De- Denise Martin's Vagina Memorial Challenge. Oh my God. <laughs> Yikes. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, this is a... Uh... This is one where they, they have to they, they square off and the, there's not really an attack zone. The entire challenge is it, an attack it's zone. It's literally the Thailand attack zone as a challenge. Yeah. Where basically three people just beat the crap out of each other and try to roll each other in the water. And th- the joke that I made earlier is because two of the rounds end with Denise's blurred crotch being put right in front of the camera. She's rolled off into the water. It's a Survivor Sucks favorite GIF file, GIF file, however you pronounce that. They love that image. So, but yeah, this is the Denise Martin's blurred crotch well, memorial what, challenge. So, so the winner of this challenge basically gets the – they get a tarp and it's, it's the comfort, which you're like, comfort. oh, yay, blankets and pillows. But they also get a tarp and some rope and some uh, kerosene uh, uh, things. Uh, a a they, big, ugly, but functional tarp, according to yay, Jeff Rose. And that's, this is this is John Hu's first win, and it's due to the fact that I think it was it was Mike who said it earlier is the fact that they they run this heat in women versus men, and coincidentally the women go first, and because of that, John Hu's going to win because every woman uh, heat that happens, the John Hu women win, 
And then they get the men out there and the Jean Robert James team just, you know, crushes the Jean Hu men. But it's like women for Jean Hu win a point. Then the Phalong men win a point. Then the Jean Hu women win a point. Then the Phalong men win a point. And then for that fifth and deciding match, it's women and the, the Jean Hu women win and they get their first win. Yeah, you could even go further than that and say they win because of Sharia. Sharia is like kicking ass out there. She's way stronger than everyone else for the women. Yep. So, I've, but we also can't get kind past of begins the, the storyline as you know being this really strong, dominant challenge, you know, yeah. player that we'll hear for the next few episodes. That's true. Mm-hmm. On the previously on for this next for in episode four, Jeff points out how like Sharia apparently won both these challenges for Jean Hu, which might be debatable. But I think we're skipping past the big thing that happens or small thing. I don't know. We didn't see it, uh, but it was it's what happened in this challenge, which is that Dave decides to just go naked for both of the male heats and it does absolutely nothing well it worked for richard hatch i mean it, it can't possibly go wrong when you're naked in a challenge maybe if maybe if leslie was going up against him maybe <laughs> yeah. so yeah so dave pulls his pants off it makes no difference in the challenge other than when dave's thrown in the water now there's a blur that's about yeah. it that's the only difference it makes whatsoever i swear he, he gets blurred more than amanda in this challenge so anyway, John Hu wins, and uh, it's their first win, and they're you know jumping up and down and all that sort of stuff. And uh, then they have to kidnap somebody, and so they kidnap Leslie. Did they say why they kidnap Leslie? They don't. She's genuine. But, she's genuine. Train wreck. But, but you can also <laughs> you can also infer, I think, that because Jamie gave the idle clue to Leslie, she was thinking maybe Leslie will reciprocate there, but also that you know she talked with Leslie a little bit, sort of on her own. So I think that she was the more inviting character to bring over. Okay, and yeah, Leslie comes over to Jean Hu, and she immediately says, "Oh, the morale is so much better over here. Everyone's just happier." Well, like, Dave got off. Dave got, Dave got off on the right foot here, where he just puts his hand on her shoulder and he says, "I promise to watch my mouth and keep my pants on while you're here." Aw, have I showed you my fire pit yet? <laughs> to be to be fair, she was quite impressed by the fire pit. I remember her saying in an interview. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> should be it took you know. It was Dave's life's work <laughs> to get that thing up. I mean, it's just like it, 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 it needs. I mean, I don't have the conservatory done yet, but you know, you, you, can, see, you can see what I'm going for here. <laughs> yes, this is the servants' quarters over here. All right, so yeah, so Leslie basically spills all the details about Phelong when she's over there. She's like, "Oh, Aaron's our leader, and oh, they're very cynical people." So she basically does exactly what you're supposed to, not supposed to do. And PG brings up a good point here where she says she got the information out of her not by interrogating or coercing, which is might be something that like Dave would do, but they were simply like belly flopping into the water and gossiping and having a good time. And Leslie just opens up her craw and all this information flows out. Yes. Just some, just some, some fun girl talk. Are you Christian? You are. How many? One, two, there's, there's three. Okay. Three Christians. Okay. Just doing the Inquisition over there. What a show. <laughs> very good. All right, so we cut back to uh, Fei Long. This is a very famous scene in the season where Jean Robert and James are hanging around the water just doing bro stuff. And uh, first off, James takes some digs at Leslie, asking why she's so Christian, saying that people who pray the most sin the most. That's why they praying, which is a fantastic quote from James. Maybe James read the Scarlet Letter after he read all those outdoors books when he was in Barnes & Noble. <laughs> What a pull. That's a good pull. Yeah. Okay, so now we have Jean-Robert and James uh, basically talking shit about Courtney. This is going to be a fun little scene. 
And Courtney and Todd are just off to the side carving some, uh, I forget what they're doing. Some They're like stuff. peeling the husk off the tree, you know, for kindling or yeah. for a fire starter. And this is where Jean Robert is going off on a rant about how Courtney's useless. She doesn't do anything. She should be the first one voted off. And then he gives, which is arguably the quote of the season, uh, how he talks about how James has a thing for Courtney. James kind of likes her. And he says, James, you know, the only thing better than a million dollars is a million dollars and some ass. And so there you go. That's the quote of the season right there. John Robert. Yeah. And Court, uh, Courtney overhears it, of course. And she, she is charmed. She's like, oh, my God, he loves me. He's a true romantic. Oh, my God. Well, I feel like Boo from Fiji was watching this at home and being like, see, this is what I was trying to do the whole time. <laughs> I built this path. This is what happened. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's also just fantastic that the two people that happened to overhear it, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't uh, Amanda and Denise. It happened to be Todd and Courtney. And so it was Courtney who was obviously had the remarks directed towards her and Todd, who's one of her like number one supporters in a perfect sounding board to where he says like, I'll strangle his ass, which is also just a fantastic image of little Todd trying to like <laughs> mount John Robert in order to strangle him. Uh, but it's just, Oh God, it's so douchey and slimy and it's a perfect characterization of this man. <laughs> It's 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 perfect. It's funny though because James is just sort of in the water, and I mean he's laughing along, and it's like it's it's unclear whether to whether the James is like really genuinely into this conversation and and liking what John Robert is saying, or if he's just kind of going with it because they're in the water and they're talking. But like you can see when they say like you know oh a million dollars is mass and Courtney, you can just see Courtney just Courtney just thinks this is the funniest shit she's ever heard in her life. She's just laughing along at just these pig men but like todd is like getting upset and so it was just kind of fun to to see all the different reactions that came along too let's see here okay so we go back to uh, after this scene now uh, we go to uh fei long and uh or is this john who the john who <clears throat> yeah yeah the, yeah the idol so so leslie has to give someone the clue about the hidden idol and she gives it right to Jamie since Jamie gave it to her last time. So we have a little cross uh, tribal alliance thing going on here between Leslie and Jamie. And the clue says basically you've been looking at it the whole time. Uh, it's something obvious. That was the first clue. And the second one is look towards the heavens. Don't look down. So it's definitely not on the ground. <laughs> it's definitely yeah. So yes. So Judd. Judd Memorial Clue. Alright and we're going to go right into episode 3 immunity challenge here. This is the one... Uh, <laughs> the Courtney Yates Memorial Challenge. Yeah, the Courtney Yates Memorial Challenge. Her hands have still not recovered from this challenge where where you're supposed to chop down these uh, bundles of discs with a with like a big old knife or machete or something. And once they're down, you build a little stack of puzzles, make a little... Take the discs and build a puzzle out of them. And uh, basically because Courtney sat out the last challenge, she isn't allowed to sit this one. And this one requires a minimal... Physical strength in Dungeons and Dragons terms, you need a minimum score of eight on your strength chart to be able to cut these down, and she's about out of five. So yeah, so this is a. <laughs> I partic- I happen to love this challenge. This is one of my favorite ones of Survivor China, and it's because they add the slow motion little kung fu theaters, uh, the stop motion shots where <clears throat> they uh, <clears throat> sorry, where they freeze frame. The people are cutting down the rope and they'll freeze frame at the exact moment. It's, this is corny little thing that. They only really do in Survivor China, and I think maybe Philippines does it too, but it's just a cute little cheesy moment that I love in this challenge. Yeah, I mean, Courtney in this challenge makes Jamie Newton look like a lumberjack in terms of her cutting skills. Like, it's 
It's unfortunate because I love Courtney, but it's so pathetic. I mean, I think <laughs> what like three Jean Hu members go before Courtney finally, and they, she doesn't even cut through her robe. Jean Robert comes up with the idea for her to like literally just saw pathetically through the robe. But to be fair, because Jean Hu is Jean Hu at a puzzle, uh, as much as Dave and Sharia can try to do what they want to, Fei Long does catch up a good amount. But surprisingly, uh, Todd and Jean Robert, maybe Todd still miffed at the comments Jean Robert was making, but they don't work well together. And so. Again, apparently by the grace of Sharia, Jean Hu wins their first immunity challenge. One thing that I, I don't think a lot of people notice, and I never really caught it until this latest watch, is right before they do the challenge when it's announced that you have to use your strength to cut through these ropes, Courtney looks over at somebody on Jean Hu and she kind of holds up her hands in a prayer and she says, pray for me. Like, uh, she knows probably, she's screwed. Probably, probably Leslie, right? Didn't Leslie sit out the challenge? I think so, but I think that if you watch it, Courtney knows she's screwed. She's like, oh shit, I gotta cut through stuff, pray for me. So they have Courtney go first because they figure that she's going to take the longest, and she certainly does. And it's you know there, there's a couple of shots where you know Jean Hu is cutting through their ropes, and they get the the slow motion where they're chopping the yeah. the discs down, as Mario said, which is just odd it's and so yet cheesy, cheesy and fun <laughs> at the same time. And then you go back to Courtney, and there's a couple times where she's like barely swinging, and she's and there's one time she's like, "How are they doing this?" And it's like, "Well, Courtney, they are." Um, they're chopping. Grown-ups. Yeah, they're grown-ups. Yeah, and, and they're doing it. <laughs> I feel like Survivor missed a comedy moment because, like, finally with, like, her last bit, Courtney saws through the rope, and then, and then she has to saw through. Like, I, I wanted them to slow motion the saw. Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been fantastic. You know, but that's not what they were going with. But I, I think they totally should have slow motioned the saw. Because, like, even Courtney finally gets through all of the boards <laughs> to cut the ropes, and then the, the, the discs come, and so then she's just got to chop the disc rope, and then she, like, swings at that and can't even chop it in the thing, and then they're like, just saw it. Uh, it's not good. But anyway, John, who again, wins? Okay, so we go back to Fei Long, and it looks like uh, we, have, we have Leslie back here on Fei Long now, and they've lost the challenge, and it looks like it's going to come down to either Leslie or Courtney. Courtney, because she is weak, and because she can't do anything, and Leslie, because they're a little worried that she has friends on the other side, and she's a little too eager to go talk to them all the time. But, you know, she plays her cards just right. She tells the tribe, hey, I told them all about you guys. Told them that Aaron's the leader. (laughs) Hey, if there's one person who knows how to play cards, it's the man that's been snuggling up to her against her will for the past week and a half. With no underwear and her bra. It's it's surprising that the the person who like is really the champion, I guess, from an editing perspective, behind Leslie going is Aaron. He's the one that says like Leslie's putting you know her heart above her brain, and actually the plan is initially to get rid of Jean Robert. And Todd and Amanda approach him, and he says, "No, no, no, we're getting rid of Leslie." And this is sort of again him kind of enforcing his leader's will, and Todd and Amanda saying, "Okay, I guess we have to go along with this." Yeah, and again, this does back up the thing that everyone just remembers that this is being the Todd and Amanda story, but it's really not their story yet. Like, Aaron's still calling the shots here. But you could see, you know, like, Chicken in episode one talked about, like, well, I'm going to vote for Ashley because she didn't do nothing, you know? And, and it's that whole thing in Survivor of, you know, trying to figure out who to vote for. And obviously, these are different situations. But then Ashley, in that second tribal council where she goes home, you know, Jeff asks her, so Ashley, what are you basing your vote on tonight? And she just says, I'm voting for... Dave, you know, she just flat out says it at tribal council. And here, you know, Todd and Amanda and Aaron have got a choice on who they want to uh, who they want to vote out. They've got several things. And I think they initially are like, OK, fine, Leslie. But then they think about it some more. And, you know, 
Courtney wants John Robert out and she sort of talks about it. So then they're like, maybe we should vote John Robert out. And so they want to do that. But then Aaron says, no, 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 we're going to vote Leslie because she's made inroads with the other team. And it's like Todd and Amanda, they just let Aaron have their wish because it's just someone else that they need to get rid of. Right. So yeah. like getting rid of Leslie is okay too. Like, it's not like it's a humongous sacrifice. They, they, they would have liked John Robert to go home because they had reasons for John Robert to go home. But Aaron wants Leslie to go home. They're using Aaron as a mouthpiece. They're like, all right, fine. Okay, Aaron, you can have this one. It's, it's that, uh, just that small amount of flexibility that makes them good players. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. Okay, so we get to Tribal Council. Again, just very little strategy talk in these episodes. Episodes just okay. It could be this. It could be this. We show Aaron saying, "I'm not going to vote for Jean Robert," and then we go to tribal council. And there's a kind of interesting thing here at the start of the tribal council where Jean Robert points out that you know the two people we can lose on Fay Long are Courtney and Leslie. They're the two weakest ones. And then Courtney seems to get all hurt. Courtney's like, "Well, it you know it hurts to realize that every single challenge is how can we minimize Courtney? Where can we put her so she doesn't hurt us?" And Jean Robert's like, well, I'm sorry, but that's the reality. And this is one of those things like, you know, he's actually kind of right, even though, you know, obviously you don't just say it like that if you want to be friends with people. But he is correct that so many of these early challenges seem to be how can we minimize Courtney's damage, how she's not going to hurt us. And uh, like, admittedly, yeah, it sucks to hear that for her, but that that's the truth of their situation. And I don't know how she could deny that. Well, a couple, a couple things on that, though. So first, I agree that John Robert might have a good idea about this. I mean, you know, Leslie and Courtney are the two weakest, or Leslie and Todd are the probably the two weakest physically on the tribe. But again, he goes about implementing this idea completely the wrong way, to the point where after Courtney is visibly hurt, he says, like, uh, he tries to, like, cover up his tracks by saying, like, no, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't mean that you're weak. And Jeff calls him out and says, <laughs> no, you said that exactly, Jean Robert. I, I mean, yeah. I John Robert totally verbalizes his philosophy on life by saying that he's one of those guys who keeps it real. And I don't know if anyone's, <laughs> if you guys have met anyone who says, you know, I just like to be really honest and keep it real. You know that that person is probably one of the biggest assholes in your life. And I feel like that's who John Robert is. He's like, I have to be the honest person in this situation. But when you realize, like, you don't have to. There's a difference between honesty and not having a filter. Yeah, it's cool, Courtney. You can still snuggle up with me in the shelter tonight. God. <laughs> but yeah, so Leslie has a big argument at Tribal Council. Like, we need to be more like Jean Hu. They have heart. We don't have heart. They are very unified over there. We need to be more like that. Which is a good argument because they immediately vote her out. <laughs> they have a fire pit. What do we have? <laughs> yeah, you should see their fire pit, guys. Yeah, so we lose Leslie. Sister Christian, as Jean Robert writes on his vote. And I, I do have to say, again... It's fun to kind of pick on Leslie, but she's so earnest and clearly like believes so much of what she's saying. I have a hard time really kind of picking on her. She seems like she's a super nice person. And I can back that up by saying that when she's voted out, even Courtney has a little pouty lip that they lost their mom. And if Courtney feels bad about you leaving, that probably says something. There is something here. You you brought up Sister Christian before, though, and another yet another Thailand analog here. We have one Sister Christian vote, two mom votes. Why did Jeff not get on his... Denver Diva high horse here and demand that Phelong <laughs> not write down nicknames. I guess by season 15, he was better at reading between the lines. Well, A, there's reading between the lines, but also Denver Diva. What the, what the, what the <laughs> hell is that, right? Like, well, but, 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 but also Denise is a mom, right? They could have said, like, she could have assumed <laughs> that it was Denise. Yeah, but at the same time, you're, you are right. But I think that with this one, they, they talked about how it was either going to be Courtney or, or, um, or Leslie. 
So I think Jeff was just going with that. Um, before we go too far down the Denver Diva path here, I'm going to uh, just say that although I did I did mention that Leslie does annoy me, I do have a lot of respect for her for being a longtime fan of the show and persistently trying to get on the show. I remember she tells at some point in some pregame interview or postgame interview that the moment she decided to apply for the show and she wasn't going to give up until she got on the show was at the Survivor Africa reunion show after they show the preview for Survivor Marquesas, Bryant Gumbel asks them, uh, and given the opportunity, who would go out and do it again? Raise their hand. They want to do it again. So she said, from that moment on, she decided she was going to get on the show, and she did everything in her power to get on the show. So in that respect, I can respect Leslie's journey as a Survivor fan to get on the show. So Brian Gumbel changes lives, is what you're saying? Yeah. Was that ever in doubt? Was that ever a question? <laughs> exactly. You should see Brian Gumbel's fire pit, by the way. All right, so we lose Leslie, and now we're going to go into episode four, where we're about to lose Crazy Dave. Well, so it, uh, it we, starts off though. It starts off though with John Robert, and this is where John Robert is implementing step two of his master plan. So his first step was <laughs> to be lazy and weak. His second step is to now yell at everybody because now he's working again. <laughs> step four: profit. <laughs> the underpants gnomes. <laughs> yeah, John Robert. It tells us he's like a racehorse. He's improving and getting better. He's like a racehorse against the rail. He's edging up this, to the front now. They don't realize he's coming. And again, yeah, like Mike said, that means yelling at Courtney and getting in a big fight. Although, it's not as bad as Jean Hu because we go over to Jean Hu and their rice is moldy. So we have a little, little obstacle here. The fire pit could not prevent the moldy rice. Which sucks. But luckily, luckily, there is, you know, they, they, they have good conflict resolution around the moldy rice. <laughs> yes. So they get a fun little Dave and Sharia fight, which will go on, go on for quite a while now. This is where Sharia, her character, finally raises up. Ah, so she's not the challenge beast. She's the person who's going to fight with Dave all the time now that Ashley's not there. I love that they go back and forth about the best method to remove the rice. And Sharia doesn't agree with Dave. And then she makes him count about, well, great. You can get that shit out. I ain't eating it. <laughs> And then, and then continues the fight by taking Dave's shells away from him that he wants to give to his mom and <laughs> bolts down to the lake to get rid of him. And he chases her down the whole time and she's yelling at him, I wish you would hit me. Back up off me. Back up off me. Back up off me. I think she says uh, it about ten times. It's a, it's a great like tracking shot too almost. And that like that's one of the rare times you can tell that there's a camera person actually standing there because the camera person tries to follow Dave running past the gate to Sharia, and he actually follows. So it's like one continuous shot from Sharia taking the shells to Dave accosting her. It's like the opening shot in Goodfellas, the one that gets the Academy Awards, the big, long tracking shot. That's the survivor version of it. Yes, exactly. When Joe, Joe Pantoliano took the, took, uh, took the seashells and just went, went outside the courthouse. <laughs> yes. Sorry, Paul, we're doing movie quotes again. Oh, but I just tune out, so it's okay. Right. But again... <laughs> I want you guys to note that it is episode four, and when Sharia takes his shells, where is Dave? Fire pit. He's still kind of fiddling with this fire pit. <laughs> the art of war says you must have shells on your fire pit. I mean, I mean, granted, when when Leslie came in episode three to Janhu, they had a fire going in the fire pit. So, like, the fire pit is functional at this point. But notice it's not done because he's still fiddling with that fire pit. 
I just have this like fun image of like everybody else like getting water and sticks and trying to get a shelter going, and Dave's just like this fire pit. Let me tell you, <laughs> it's like the Winchester Mystery House. He's constantly adding little doors and windows that go nowhere. Oh my god, what a reference! What a what a crazy house that is. So, <laughs> speaking of people who are uh, into spirits and things, no, I I don't even have a good segue to that. Let's just get into this horrifically racist <laughs> reward challenge. <laughs> this is where we find out that John Wilbert is also the bad boy of chopsticks. <laughs> yes. um, so for those of you who don't remember, the mild racism, mild benign racism in this shot is the, the challenge is uh, they have a little ball, a fireball. They're supposed to pick it up with chopsticks, drop it into a wok, and that sets off fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> so there's three stereotypes all in one challenge. It's fantastic. And they do it at then, night. The night setup it, is nice, you know, and it, it it reminded me a lot of that Marquesas challenge where they had to like make popcorn. Yeah. Well, this one's kind of like popcorn. I mean, they are cooking stuff in a wok. Hey, there you One, go. I'm trying to think about what the last nighttime challenge was outside of like, you know, Fallen Comrades and the trivia they do in Pearl Islands. It might have been that Thailand, the the trivia with snuffing the torches might have been the last nighttime they, challenge. They had one on Amazon, didn't they? I think Becky and Sundra's fire making challenge went over two different nights. Technically, that wasn't a challenge. That was an ordeal. <laughs> yes, there was that. Wasn't there? Wasn't there a challenge at Amazon? One at night. The individual final seven immunity. Yeah, the trivia one outside. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the so one the Rob one. So either one is it was a trivia one that was the last one that we saw, and then we'll see the one with Pearl Islands was technically a tribal council as well. But I, yeah. I mean, obviously you have to do it for the fireworks, but again, it's a cool setting that we haven't seen, you know, in like nine se- or nine or eight seasons at this point. So it was, it was as, you know, mildly or uh, spicy racist as this may be. I don't know why I was measuring that in terms of salsa levels when I'm talking about a Chinese <laughs> challenge. That's just even more racist on my part. Um, yeah. But... <laughs> As, ex- as extremely racist as this may be, it is cool that it's at night. Yeah, it was slightly more racist than a Serrano pepper. <laughs> yes, exactly. This is yeah, the, no, ghost, the ghost pepper of racist and, challenges. You know, and but but the thing about it is with the nice setup and and the and the horrifically stereotypical challenge, it is it's a pretty boring one in the, in the sense that just Phelan gets out to a small lead and they don't lose it and they win. Well, yeah, I mean, again, this is one of those things that. You know, even though it's very culturally insensitive and racist, it, it again, it's one of these challenges that's specific to a season. Like this challenge only happens in Survivor China. And that's God, I should I, hope so. <laughs> it doesn't work so well in Survivor Africa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the the challenge would not rate quite so high on the Scoville scale on that one. So the the so Feilong wins this challenge, and I guess it's a good thing that they did in a lot of ways because of how it plays out. But basically, how it goes is they get. Um, Bas- the 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 reward is basically that a local fisherman's going to come and teach him how to catch fish the next day and they're going to bring his family and they're going to have uh, a meal so that's basically how it goes and then they win but they also get to kidnap someone and they choose to kidnap dave oh God, yeah, crazy dave regret that choice oh my. I, <laughs> because we don't have a fire pit we don't have a fire pit at our camp yet and there are so many great moments from this and it starts off even with Dave just creeping everybody out. I mean, he does this thing where, he, like, James is eating a lime. He's like, oh, what are you eating? Uh, a lime? And he goes, <laughs> and he starts giving him a hug. And James just goes, hey, hey, man, I told you about the hugging, which is hilarious yeah. because you can imagine 
this happened at least one time before and James had to warn him against don't hug me, which I, I would like to see that scene as well. Because And then there's another scene where like Courtney just says like, oh, I'm from New York. And Dave decides to hug her because she reminds him of New York. Like he is just, he's again, if he was at a seven in episode two and 11 in episode three, he's at like a 65 in episode four in terms of his mentality. <laughs> And we just further to go further along with that, there's the scene where Dave gets the, you know, the clue to the hidden idol and he gets all giddy about it. He gets real giggly. Then he goes and gives it to Todd because by definition, everyone must help Todd win this season. I guess that that's the rule here. So, yeah, so Todd's wow. Another person gave me a clue. And Todd says, all right, well, if I ever get kidnapped, I'll give you the clue, too, which is the, the way to do it. And uh, what is the third clue? I don't remember. It's, a, it's something very similar to the second clue, if I recall. The second one was like, look up. And the third one is like. Keep looking up or something like that. No, it was it was like it was a uh, creatures of the night, which alludes to the fact that there are bats on the corners of these little placards oh. above the gate, which I didn't even notice the first time I watched this season because there's such like there's such decorative shapes in that plaque that you wouldn't even recognize that they were bats unless you were looking really hard. Amanda's kind of a creature of the night also, so that would be confusing for Todd. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually gonna laugh at that one and not say I know. you, but I'm so excited I got Paul to laughing at an Amanda zombie joke. So, All right, so what's happening here? Yeah, what's what? So uh, oh, they cut to Jean Hu, and without Dave, there no one's doing any work. They're kind of collapsing because nobody wants to do anything. They're collapsing because no one's doing any work, but at the same time, they're like, boy, not a lot of talking around here without Dave. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, so let's get to the reward because I know you Hold guys on, have a lot we gotta to say. we've got to get my favorite quote of Sharia from the whole season. This right, what's is your the, sassy, uh, sassy black quote you have, Paul? This is the quote of her lying in the shelter, and she has a blur over her bra because her um her chest is falling out, and uh, everyone's getting annoyed at her for not working. That's when she gives us the quote about, and we get also the title of this episode where she says, "Well, I'm going to ride the workhorse till the tails fall off, because I ain't doing nothing till I have to." On on my scale of racism, I would call that extra spicy. That impression. <laughs> it is yes. an endearing. Um, imitation. <laughs> I love it. It's right under a habanero. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just it's a really it's a really strong strategy to play the game. Yeah, it's, it's a strong strategy to you know like tell not every, even not, fake it. Not yeah. like I'm I'm going to act like I'm doing more work. I'm going to conserve my energy, but just to flat out say that I'm not doing anything till I have to. Yeah, it, it's it's good and it's good to tell people that too. Um, she and she and Jean Robert should have been in an alliance together. That would have been fun strategy talks. So. We got we cut back to Feilong and the fisherman family comes in this uh in this little fishing boat and you know the, like it's the whole thing and what's funny is they have the whole thing where like there's children and I think it's like James or somebody's just like hey, there's children's <laughs> and like I think it's Courtney's just like well they said family <laughs> <laughs> well I thought Chinese families could only have one kid what's the deal with them having two kids no, it's it's the two kids stand on each other's shoulders and wear a big trench coat, so it looks like there's one kid. <laughs> okay, yeah, because I was, oh, I was I'm surprised the one they saying the horrible things. Yeah, I was surprised they didn't bind the girl's feet and toss her in the river. Oh my wow, God. Bound, bound feet, Mario. This is not Roll, rolling a Chinese girl in the river like Denise's. Well, snatched. and here's the fact is that we went back in time, Jay. Don't you yeah, remember that? We did go back in time. We went exactly. back to the time of bound feet. So... I'm just historically accurate, you dick. Wow ridiculous so uh basically the family comes in and you know they're saying you know ni hao and hi and you know sort of basic things but this is gonna just be another one of these language barrier things where some uh person uh indigenous to 
the land that they're in is going to try to teach them things, and it's just going to be a lot of gesturing and pointing. But, surprisingly, Jean Robert knows Mandarin. So, then he starts speaking to them in Mandarin, so then everything goes way quicker. And you get uh, you get the thing going where he basically is like, oh, well, they need two people, and they're going to stay, and we're going to prepare the meals. So, they basically have, what, Aaron and Denise go out and learn the, the, the art of fishing, which... Yeah. They don't. I, they, I don't feel like they got a lot of applicable skills, but it was still a cool experience. <laughs> yeah. Considering Watch that, like, what, birds. yeah, the lesson is get one of these birds. Uh, yeah, I also admit something here. I know Denise has been pretty invisible for the first three episodes, but outside of you know what's going to happen at the end of the game, I kind of love Denise just because between her like Boston accent and the words that she uses, where she's just so in awe of these fishermen and also when she's eating the fish and she calls it like it was the it's the delicatest thing i ever put in my it's, mouth it's the delicatest thing <laughs> yes i just love like and we'll talk about obviously next episode is going to be the big james has a crush on denise storyline but i feel like denise roars into prominence here which uh, I, I i fell in love with denise all over again it, re-watching denise, this. denise again everyone's getting their moment in the stun denise is a fantastic character and you can just see that she's really enjoying this experience. But yeah, they go on the fishing thing. And it's like, unlike the other, like in Palau, when they learn to, you know, get the small bait and then, you know, put the thing in the water. Like this one, it's like the guy's just like, I've got these birds. And uh, you sort of tie off their necks a little bit so they can't fully swallow their food. And the birds go down and catch little fish. And then you have some fish or and then you can use them. And I was sitting there going like, so are they going to give them birds? No? Okay, <laughs> fine. Okay. Then, well, all right. It's very dishonest to even call him a fisherman. He's not a fisherman. He's a guy who robs birds. <laughs> to be fair, though, they were going to give them the birds, but then they caught Dave tying the birds to uh, cinder blocks to build a new fire pit. So they decided to get <laughs> rid of it. I need a fire pit with birds. It's not <laughs> rocket science. Yes. Dave Johnson. So, like, uh, it's such a goofy scene. Yeah, it's just such a goofy scene because the guy's not doing any fishing and he's not teaching him anything. <laughs> yeah. But he does, they just show him, and they're just like, well, he showed us how to spread a net across the water. I was like, well, thank God he was there to show you that. And then um, they come back with some fish, but they already had some fish cooking. And, you know, they get a little scene where it's funny, you know, it's just Jean Robert being, being a dick for dick's sake, I guess, on TV, is that they're preparing the, the meal. And then John Robert is just barking out what the, uh, uh, what, the, what the mother is saying. And, you know, she's just like, oh, she needs this, she needs this. And, you know, then James is just like, hey, man, don't order me around. And he's like, look, I'm just trying to blah, blah, blah. And you can see James go, yeah, John Robert got on my nerves. But, you know what, he's translating Chinese. He's doing his thing. It was really nice. And I was like, so there's no conflict. Okay, so moving on. Yeah, I, I do love the small little detail that John Robert happens to know Mandarin. Yeah. It's a little character quirk. He's the little, bad boy of Panda Express. He's the b- <laughs> so they, they have a pretty decent looking meal and uh, the fishermen go away and they're like, hey, I'm, 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 I hope you learned the lesson. Get these birds and train them over a, <laughs> yeah. over a lifetime. See you later, guys. <laughs> in the next 21 days. Well, you know, they, they, if they have the power to go back in time, they should be able to go back even further and with this information, steal the birds from this fisherman before the reward even happens. Get them trained. What is this fucking Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Well, okay, so if we, leave the, if we leave the rope right here, we should grab it to lasso the birds. Rufus, what are you doing here, dude? And I imagine Whoa. the wild, I imagine the wild totally stallions, the wild stallions theme ends with like a gong now. <laughs> we totally did raise those birds. Whoa. Sorry, Paul. Tuned out as always. <laughs> All right. So we got past the famous Mandarin slash bird catching challenge. 
or uh, reward. Now we're going to the immunity challenge. This is before another personal there, Before favorite. we get there, we, we do point out that Dave gave Todd the thing, and he was just like, hey, man, do you believe in reciprocation? Yeah, he says, <laughs> do you believe turnabout is fair play? Turnabout Which, like, is fair play. That's... I took something like, is that a riddle? Am I supposed to answer this directly? <laughs> Although he's manic, he could have turned into the Riddler by then, and you would have believed it. You'd be like, riddle me this. <laughs> you'd just be like, I will rule Gotham one day with All right, my I'll, fire I'll, pit. I'll give you the clue, but first... What has four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs at night? Don't have time. You guys are talking about Batman. <laughs> yeah. You don't even read comic books in Montana? Come on, Paul. I just, we, we hike and we guide people, so. <laughs> it's true. That's okay. what you got. And you're livid all the time. All right. May I go to the immunity challenge yes. now, Jay? May. All right. Thank you, sir. All right, the episode four immunity challenge. This is another one I am particularly a big fan of. I love almost all the challenges in this season. This one's great because they wear the Chinese armor. This is their gladiator battles where they dress up in armor. They look like like whatever the Chinese equivalent to uh, samurai would be. And uh, they throw these things called meteor hammers, which I know is bolos, but I'm sure meteor hammers is a cooler name. And they try to smash vases on the other side while the other tribe tries to block it with their armor and their bamboo sticks. And again, yes. it's one of these challenges that May perhaps a little mildly racist, but again, it could only have happened in China. It's specific specific to this one season, and it's very creative, and I love it. Well, you talked you talked in the previous immunity challenge about how cheesy that slow mo shot is. I would I would argue that this <laughs> shots are even cheaper, where it's not a slow mo shot as much as it is the same stock f- yeah, footage. It's the of same footage. being thrown, used about five or six times over the course of the challenge. Yeah, it's lazy editing more than anything else. I call it the Sam Raimi Evil Dead shot because that's the shot that Sam Raimi uses like when a body part's flying across the room, he'll focus in on it and do a close-up of the body part spinning. That's exactly what the bolo looks like in this one. It's yeah, but it's not zooming in. It's just a stock shot of one going across, which is worse than this. But it's meteor hammers are a real thing. Like that's, you know, and, that, and, the, and the armor, while that's not authentic armor, like they tried. I'm going to give them a they tried on this one other than the other challenge, which is they didn't try very hard. They put chopsticks in it, you son of a bitch. Wow. <laughs> so, oh yeah, by one little thing that I noticed on this challenge is that, you know, they often put on the helmets at the start of the challenge, but Jamie kind of has a big head. She can't fit the helmet. It only goes halfway down her head. Just watch for it next time. But this is the, this is the closest she'll have to a bra this entire season, so she's very happy <laughs> about that. <laughs> the helmet, yeah. Also notice that the people who scored points for Jean Hu were pretty much the women? That is correct. So anyway, yeah, this is a fun challenge. It's very close. It kind of comes right down to the wire, and then Fei Long wins at the end. This is another short one, though. It goes for, what, like two rounds, basically? And I'm assuming it's, you know, they in, with a lot of these types of challenges, they usually edit out other rounds. It's usually like when they do the wrestling challenges, it's like best two out of three. But this one, it's like, okay, the women will go up first, then the men will go up, and you each get basically three shots, and that's it. And you would think that for something this decadent, uh, and this outlandish, you would think that like they drag it out more and more and more. But no, this that lasts again for a total of like five minutes overall. Yep, it's short, short and sweet. Short and sweet. Fei Long wins. So then uh, we got to go back to Jean Hu and G. Hmm. I wonder who's gonna go home. Well, it's just it's basically a repeat of the Dave versus Ashley showdown. It's Dave versus Sharia. Well, we got to break up this fight, so one of these two has to go home so we can get rid of the tension. So it's, it's almost a repeat of before. Although this time we lose crazy Dave. And I think they they cut a scene at the end of this where actually it cut back to Jean Hu's camp, and you see a little tear emanate from the fire pit, 
as it drips <laughs> down each cinder block and eventually hits the dirt. It's a touching moment. It's like Bruce's rock garden. It was never to be forgotten. I don't know. I just feel like Dave and his fire pit is just, it's funny because Dave is such a character. Like I, when you look at the boot list for the season, you just can't believe that Dave is the fourth boot. Like he just seems like he's a, uh, he's in the season much, much more than that. But he, what a four episodes. I mean, they are, he's, he's very prominent in most of them, you know, mainly for being crazy Dave, but he's he's just at the forefront and he's just this huge character and then just the side thing is that he's just always working on that fire pit it's just (laughs) never done just when you're watching the season just watch him fiddling with this fire pit and i mean granted by the time he leaves that fire pit is amazing i'm not going to discredit that but it's like boy dave you went crazy and worked on that fire pit and that was about it i mean by the the time time you have to really you have to really like wait is that tribal council or is that the fire pit (laughs) Yes. <laughs> by the time he leaves it's like 25 feet high do you remember there's like four different levels there's like steps and columns it's really cool well they, they hire a yeoman guard right to stand outside it patrol <laughs> yes it's just jamie in her helmet and armor she blocks it <laughs> yeah so i feel bad all the people over the years that told me i should have written about dave on the funny 115 i don't even mention him anywhere in the entire thing and i, I feel horrible now after watching this season and seeing what a great entry he would have been so Whoever yelled at me over the years for saying I neglected to write about Dave, you are absolutely correct, and I was wrong, so I will admit that. And I guess we might as well lose another alpha male. Let's go to episode five. Yeah, we could do episode five. We got time. All right. Episode five is a uh, particularly notorious episode. It's one that, kind of a controversial one, it's one that really pissed me off at the time to the point that... I wrote a whole entry about Jamie being a huge villain because of this episode. This is this one kind of sets starts the narrative for the rest of the season. We've had four good episodes; these are all pretty strong episodes. But five is going to kind of where it kicks into the next gear. And it's weird because even Jamie's edit in this episode is so Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, considering that it basically starts off with her and Eric flirting in the water, uh, and you know, them it's a it's basically a meet cute, even though they've met you know twelve days ago at this point, and you know. Also results-oriented. We know at this point, after the show, Jamie and Eric will get into a relationship, they'll get married, and they now have a kid. And so it's really fun watching like them sort of flirt with each other. But then about 20 minutes later, we're going to see Jamie become diabolically evil and literally cackling out loud at Aaron's demise. So it's such a weird dichotomy. I would like to take offense at your statement saying that Jamie and Eric have a kid because I know from the edit that Eric is a virgin. So I don't believe that could have happened. Uh, have, you heard of the, have you heard of the Immaculate Conception, Mario? <laughs> I'll ask Leslie. Leslie could perhaps give me some literature about it. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's a really innocuous sort of beginning to the episode. You're right, but it, it is fun to sort of look at just with that lens, knowing that Eric and Jamie actually end up getting married. Which you know, it, that, that's that's super cute and all that sort of stuff. But you know, we start out with we we get the fishermen coming to their tribes, right? You know, with the piece of paper saying, do you like me? Yes, no, maybe. <laughs> is it the but actual no fisherman or, or is it the bird? Yeah, which one comes? Yeah. Is it the local aviary? Is it coming for yeah. the showcase? The bird comes and it throws up the note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although let's start. No, we start this episode with James and Denise. This is where James oh, yeah, yeah. realizes oh, yes. that if, if Denise was 10 years younger or he was 10 years older, he would totally tap that. <laughs> no, he would say specifically, like, Denise would be in trouble, in which trouble. sounds like a little date rapey, like, not John Robert territory, but, like, I would fear for Denise if that situation was <laughs> happening. 
I know. Can you picture her picking her up at like a Barnes and Noble in Maine or where was she from? She's got that accent. She's from she's from Massachusetts. Massachusetts, yeah. At a Barnes and Noble, they just stumble across each other and they have their own little meat cute and then they go back to a hotel or something. Uh, I couldn't help but notice your snatch. <laughs> this uh <laughs> for this this line to happen. I stepped out of the room for a second to grab something, and then I just hear Alice um, from the other room go, ew! And I was like, oh, damn it, I missed that. And I ran back in. Sure enough, that was the line that I missed. Wait, Alice is listening to us? No, 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 no. Uh, Stepped oh, out of the, the room during my rewatch of China, and then she, uh, I was waiting for that line about Denise being in trouble, and while I was out of the room, I heard an <laughs> ew! I knew that that's uh, the line that I missed. Okay, I was a little concerned that your wife was over eavesdropping on our podcast. This is kind of a boys club, Paul. You know that. Well, yeah, sorry, love that, sorry, dudes. I especially love that you compare this Jamie and Eric immediately yeah. followed by James <laughs> lusting after Denise for her work ethic. <laughs> I love the work ethic. J- James is a hard character to quantify, and it's just little scenes like that that always make me realize, or remember, or make me remember why I love James so much. He's just different. There's no other James character kind of around this era. He just stands out to me as maybe the best character of this era. Him or Yao Man, I would say. Right, and and, and spoiler alert, and this isn't even a spoiler alert, but you know, J- this is not James's first season or only season of Survivor. Like they are going to bring him back. They bring him back the closest possible chance they get, which is next season. But they're also going to bring him back for heroes versus villains. And I feel like James is one of those characters where you know me on my stance. I'm not the biggest fan of returning characters and all that sort of stuff. I'm not that, but I feel like if you're bringing people back, James is a pretty decent person to bring back most of the time because he's going to provide you with some good TV and he's yeah. not bad at things within the game as well. Like even in Micronesia, we'll definitely get to that down the line, but he is actually a pretty minor character in Micronesia, but he has fantastic sound bites throughout. I mean, I would put what in the Nickelodeon is going on here and all bitch <laughs> up there with any of this stuff from this season. He really is great. It's one of those things... He was the fan favorite of this season, correct, if I recall? Yes, this and oh, yeah. the next season. Yeah, James, he was, a again, for people who didn't really watch these seasons as they are, James was a huge character. He was a huge fan favorite. It's hard to say he was the Rupert of his era, but he really was the Rupert of his era. I mean, he didn't have quite, the viewership wasn't quite that high to the point that people, like, worshipped him, but he was definitely the Rupert of his era, and probably Yao Man right behind him. Those were the big two. He was that where, like, you know, it's not even before we knew lists, like, when they said that they were going to have a, a season of favorites or a, a tribe of favorites on the fans of his favorites, you were like, well, James, right? Like, yeah. you know, he, you knew that was happening. So, so that, that was there, but... Okay, so I forgot about that. Now can we get to the uh, challenge? Yep, this is where we get the tree mail, which some would call the most BS twist in Survivor history. In fact, in my uh, list of grievances from our, fr- our friend Adam Kolodny, who hates the season, that's right there at the top of his list, how this is the most BS twist in Survivor history. And I, I happen to agree with him. That's one of the grievances I kind of agree with. This is just a horrible twist, and I don't think Aaron deserved this at all. But okay, let's go into it here. Yeah, but at the same time, it, it just is, is a wrinkle. Like I'm, I'm not saying I liked it. But it, it, it's as it is. Basically, what happened was was that we start from Fei Long's perspective, where a, a, a fisherman comes up in a in a boat and uh, greets them and hands them a note. And the note basically says, "All right, select two members from Zhanghu that you think would contribute to your tribe as far as challenges and social and camp life and stuff like that. Circle their names on this list, and we will go get them." And what's fun is that Fei Long basically as they're doing this and they're trying to figure it out and they basically, they select uh, Frosty right off the bat because they're like Frosty's parkour guy 
And then they, they sort of go with Sharia after that. But they basically assume, you could hear them talking it out, and they're basically like, well, they're probably going to take two of ours too. So James, Gigi, we'll see you later. And they make that assumption. Whereas they go over to Jean Hu, and a fisherman goes over there and basically gives them the same note saying, circle two members from Fei Long that you want to bring over. And what's funny is that they don't come to that conclusion, which I always thought was really interesting, was that they were just like, oh, we get two? The thought doesn't even cross their mind. <laughs> no, so everyone, great. nobody speaks up and says, oh, no, maybe we're doing the same thing. Everyone just has the group mentality of, oh, how sad for Fei Long. We're going to be up <laughs> seven to five now. Like, they're like, the wow, Fei Long's is, up oh. on a seven to five. I guess the game's going to let us go up seven to five. <laughs> the reaction is, oh, they're going to be so pissed. Uh so so it's it's an amazing little dichotomy where like Feilong looks at this immediately goes, Well, I guess that two of us are going over there and then they go to Jean Hu with the note and Jean Hu's just like, Sweet, we get two Feilong members for free? Oh, <laughs> what a game. What a My life. Fan- I love how like even when the boat comes later on to pick up Frosty and Sharia, they still assume that it's for them. They're like, Oh, James and Aaron must be inside sitting down. <laughs> That's the only reason why the boat came. So they select James right off the bat because James is James. And then they sort of agonize a little bit over the second one. But they ultimately go with Aaron because they're basically like, if Aaron comes over here, we can control him. Because there will be five of us because they're not taking two of us. And just two of them, which eventually just comes out to three and two. But they're like, "We, we, we control Aaron's fate. So yes, this is a BS twist for Aaron, but... This provides some fun dynamics, this and that and the other thing. So basically, the boats then come back and reveal the notes that the other people had, which doesn't take Fei Long by surprise, but takes Jean Hu, as you said, Mike, completely by surprise. They're like, oh, two of us have to... What? Now that's <laughs> crap. <laughs> well, I really don't like these Survivor twists now. Oh, that's no good. Dave warned them, turnabout is fair play, right? They sure did. So they get on the boats, and the boats pass each other, which is a fun little scene. But uh, Aaron and James are now members of Jean Hu, and uh, Sharia and Frosty are now fem- members of Fei Long. And there's some. I sh- it, it, oh, go ahead. I was, I was going to make a horrible joke. Is that cool? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I was, gonna, I was just going to point out that this is the exact same way that Heidi Strobel and her husband adopt little African babies. They just oh give him a God. name of a bunch of little kids in the village, and she circles which one she wants, and they give Heidi her little baby. Oh, boy. All right. I'm glad <laughs> we got that one out. Yeah, that, that's, exactly. not even, that, that's not even good. That is, that that, is that's not even boy, good. That's boy bad. picante on the racist level. Uh, <laughs> ghost Pepper. I'm up to Ghost Jessica, Pepper. You're up to Ghost Send Pepper. Send all your hate mail to Mario, please. Wait, uh, I'm making fun of Heidi. How is that racist? That's a Heidi joke. Mm. So there's I, if, this wouldn't be a Survivor China episode without Courtney and John Robert going at it and there's a great scene here where john robert is like complaining about oh we're losing our two strongest warriors and courtney kind of snipes at him like oh i thought you were our strongest warrior john robert yeah. um i don't know if you guys noticed as well but on the parchment that where it says pick a fey long member they spell john robert's name wrong they put what? they write Bad down boy? they write they write down john robert how did they not respect the bad boy unacceptable yeah, by the way, when you when you say that, there's actually a second part to that scene where Courtney says, I thought you were our strongest warrior. And then James pipes in with a punchline. Yeah, you John Robert. <laughs> <laughs> Again, just a great James moment. 
And also, I love James. Isn't didn't James say in this episode before when he when he they say he's going to get picked? He goes, "Oh, the humanity." Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. just like such a weird James thing to <laughs> like. Nobody says, "Oh, the humanity" anymore. And he was watching a what was that? The Hindenburg disaster. He was watching some stock footage at Barnes and Noble before he came out. So anyway, the the new tribes come, and I don't I don't know exactly the the order it goes, but uh, Fei Long basically they get there, and then. You know, John Robert, like Frosty and Sharia get there, and basically when the t- when the new members get to their new tribes, uh, the fisherman also has a basket, so they have like a very small little feast. It's got just a, a some a little bit of food in it that they eat. But you know, at Fei Long, they're eating their little snack, and then John Robert's talking about like going out and setting nets and blah blah, blah and it, it's sort of stuff like that. And Denise even pipes up like, "Okay, tribe leader," and he's like, "I'm I'm not the tribe leader." And I think Amanda has the confessional. She's like, "John Robert is trying to prove his worth," you know. And it's like John Robert was sort of running scared there, and Frosty was basically like, "Oh, look, they don't like John Robert. That's better. That's that's even better to me than the food we had yesterday." <laughs> Yeah, Jean Robert, his, his storyline is is getting better here. here. Here he is, jumping up and down. Look at me in the shadows. Look at me, guys. At this point, if you're watching, and you, you know, John Robert is not a likable person. I get that. But you have to enjoy him because at this moment, the editors have given you enough ammunition to where you say, okay, he's not winning, guys. Like, he's not going to win this game. So just enjoy him while he's here because he's horrific. So just go with it and enjoy. He's the bad boy of breakfast. All right, so this is the where we get to the controversial part of the episode here. Right before uh, Frosty and Sharia left Jean Hu, Frosty kind of reiterates to PG and Jamie, remember, you now control the two strongest people in the game. Remember that. And this is where it's kind of going to get a little dicey on the ethics thing, where <clears throat> PG and Jamie decide, well, you know, if we throw this next challenge, we could just get rid of Amy or Aaron and James. So basically, that's the plan. They don't want Sharia or Frosty to be voted out on the other side, so we'll just throw this challenge and some would say that is the great drawback in a twist like this and that all it does is encourage whoever is encourage both tribes to try to throw the challenge and who can throw the challenge better is going to lose well yeah and i just know that because about a couple years before china about five six i hate to say that i was involved in the org online role-playing game world but i was involved in it for about a year and i had a game where i had a twist just like this where I made this big swap. They took the strongest players over the other tribe, and all the players in the game just screamed at me. All we're going to do is throw the challenge out. This is the stupidest twist either ever. Do you ever realize that? And I'm like, I didn't even realize that when I set up the twist that all they're going to do is throw the challenge. And so I have some history with realizing how these things work in real life. So I remember this in China, like, oh shit, they just did my twist where all they're going to do is compete to see who can throw the challenge the most. The most. What ultimately backfires this Mario is the fact that John Hu only has five people on it, and two of the five are the new people. So it's, it's only three people, right? And so Jamie yeah. and PG decide to throw the challenge. They don't even include Eric in this. Like Eric Correct. doesn't really know, but like they're enough. The fact that it's just the two of the three of them there, like that was enough. And the way the challenge was structured sort of lent to a throw because it was broken up into parts and certain people did certain things. Um, another challenge makes it like certain challenges make it harder to throw. And also if there were seven members, in Jamie and PG decide to throw, it's harder to, you know, with more people. Like, I think that, like, conditions were perfect. But then again, Mario, you're right. Like, I, you know, you can talk about the ethics one way or the other. I think 
that 100% the play is to throw the challenge to vote somebody off. Like, yeah, I'm not even saying that's dicey ethics. That's 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 what you do. That's what you're supposed to do. And Jamie and PG figured it out and they were able to execute it. And see, that's the thing with me in particular. I know this is going to be different for every you know person that watches the show. I played sports all my life. I played baseball, basketball. I mean, I was a hardcore sports guy when I was a kid. And you don't throw games. You don't lose games on purpose. That's so antithetical to what sports is that even though you can say, like, oh, Survivor is a sport. Survivor is all about strategy. Like, the strategy here is to lose on purpose. You can get rid of someone. To me, to someone who play, played sports my whole life, that's such a chicken shit way of defeating someone that it drives me absolutely bonkers when I see that on Survivor. And that's one one argument I have always had with Survivor, that there are situations where you can get somebody out by losing on purpose. And it's just that always drives me insane. And this one has driven me particularly insane for years. Every time I watch it, I'm like, because that's such a cowardly way to do it, even though, like you said, strategically, that is the right move here. I just I have a, such a hard time reconciling that. And again, I know this would be different for each person, depending on how many sports they've played, you know, how big they are at strategy games, what you think about ethics and stuff. But this is one in particular just always sticks in my craw. Yeah, great. I don't know. Like, first of all, it's not a sport. So I don't think that's a direct translation. But second of all, there are things in sports that have worked themselves into rules that in a way, like all games should have have concessions from from time to time like you concede something like to go backwards to go forwards you have to go a little bit backwards in a way um you know like in you know you love baseball i know mario like what's Mm -hmm. an intentional walk yeah that's the same thing i mean you put a but you're still putting a person on base you're 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 possibly threatening yourself by putting a runner on base who can hurt you so it's it's not as cut and dry as that but i I see but but the but the counter in this game like the op counter now and i know you hate to say it but the counter is the idol which almost comes into play in the next episode but you can counter this play with the idol the crazy thing about this whole thing is that the people who end up coming up with this very sound strategy are the same people who 10 minutes ago thought that for some reason two people were just randomly coming over to their tribe for nothing in exchange yeah no it's true it's just this is one of those episodes that just drives me bonkers I, i don't have a lot to say well, I think it's also I think I don't I don't think it necessarily hurts that also James is like uh, we've talked our sung our praises about James for the past couple of hours and to have him be on the receiving end is kind of sucky because basically the rest of this episode is going to be once James realizes that they threw the challenge him just kind of throwing his hands up in disbelief which he literally does at tribal council and we almost have to throw up our hands in disbelief as well it's not necessarily that they pulled off the strategy it's that they're doing it but in such kind of a malicious way and that we'll we'll soon talk about this where they're laughing vehemently out loud in front of them you know they're making jokes and James and Aaron are just incredulous about how people they're how they're treating them like trash essentially yeah and again I should point out you know, it sucks that, that this happened to Aaron, but Aaron really wasn't a big character. He wasn't a fan favorite. Can you imagine if James had been voted out here? Right. I mean, that just would have absolutely torpedoed the season. You'd lose a huge character on a, on a BS move like this. Yes, which, which obviously is a risk and all that other sort of stuff. But, but we don't, and I think that things were edited in such a way yeah, to I know. be so. But you're right. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a bit unfair, but the, the thing is that the smart play is to do it, and they did it, but... As you said, Mike, like with all things, like the play is to, to throw, but the execution of the throw should not be how they did it. Like they threw the challenge well, but how they handled it and how everything fell out afterwards cemented their fate later in the in the season. Like everyone always 
is of I feel like it's it's like when people quit Survivor. When people quit Survivor, a lot of diehard Survivor fans are usually people who have applied to be on the show that would die to be on the show. So they see someone quit, they're they basically are like, I could have done that. Like I could be on the show and and you were on the show and you quit, you know, and I wouldn't quit. And I think that a lot of people sort of apply those values. And then when they think about throwing a challenge, everyone's just like, No, you have to compete. 100% to your fullest at all times and that's how it goes and the answer is eh, eh, not so much like sometimes the strategy is to throw which seems counterintuitive but in this sense the 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 way is to throw but their attitude in throwing hurt them even further than than the strategy played yeah uh, and i can i, I don't can know argue. what you could i don't know what you could point to about this that seemed unpolished or, or <laughs> poor execution but whatever yeah, I was going to say, there have been throws in the past. I mean, Ethan threw a challenge in Africa to get rid of Silas. You had Johnny Fairplay throwing a challenge to get rid of Burton. But like you said, it's really how you do it. They were they were keeping up the illusion that they were trying. Like, they weren't giggling, they weren't laughing, they weren't trying to rub it in the guy's face when they voted him out. That was, I think that's a big difference when even Johnny Fairplay handles something more ethically than you do that says something. Well, and, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. So anyway, the, to the challenge here is... Um, we get to the immunity challenge and basically we get the, the Chinese Zodiac, which, you know, is a thing. And so they have two people that have to swim out to a little platform and then by the platform is a cage. And in the cage are like the Dharma initiative Zodiacs that are like pinned under the water by some bamboo poles or something like that. So basically they need to dive in the water and sort of to get the poles out of of the of the grid, which releases the Dharma Initiative Zodiac pieces, which they didn't need to bring back to shore. And then once they're back to shore, they need to fit them onto the little uh, puzzle piece platform. And Eric and is it Aaron? Yeah, Eric yep. and Aaron go out for Jean Hu, and it's Jean Robert and Frosty. Frosty. Yeah, Frosty go out for Phalong. And it's pretty even this time because Eric's not in on the throwing thing. Like PG and and uh Jamie situate themselves with James on the the puzzle part of the challenge. So that's what lends to the throwing is that PG and Jamie are now in complete control because they outnumbered James. So basically James is the only one of the three of them that's trying to solve the puzzle. So that that's that's not super great. But basically the uh they go through the Dharma initiative to get their things out and then they get there and then all hell breaks loose. Like Jamie throws a piece away and they're just I mean, they are making just an absolute mockery of throwing a challenge. Yeah. I mean, I, I, James makes this argument later on that Jeff asked PG a question of like, PG, you good at puzzles? And PG kind of jokes and says, well, I'm good at Sudoku. And James, I didn't actually catch this the first time, fires back, fuck Sudoku, pay attention. <laughs> uh, and then James is going to argue later, like, you shouldn't have just, you shouldn't have answered Jeff. And to him, this is one of the reasons why he, he thought that things might have been a little off. But Jamie definitely starts things off on an interesting note. I mean, while we often don't see the other players participating in the challenge, you know, talking with each other, unless, you know, you're Russell and Colby in Heroes versus Villains. Uh, but here, Jamie's trying to convince them while Aaron and Eric are still out, like, okay, uh, why don't, James, you flip the tiles over and just hand them to PG and I, and we'll take care of the rest. But James is, like, very adamant about not doing that. So Jamie decides to just literally take a disc and just throw it in the grass. She's literally throwing this challenge. <laughs> Uh, and, I, and I love Jeff's little like smart after reply after all is said and done. He says like, "Hey, Jean Hu, here's your extra piece, so it wouldn't have come in handy anyway." But then James is like, "Oh man, that would have sucked if it came to that." <laughs> hey, Paul, I'm curious what you think about this scene. I haven't heard your thoughts on this one. 
Well, I'm still waiting for you to point out one thing that went wrong with it. I think they played it out just perfectly. All right. Well, James, Someone mute, mute Paul. <laughs> well, James, Clearly, I have the- nothing interesting to add. Amanda's not in the scene. My, my high school fellow West High Bear is not really being talked about this episode. What is there to say? Are you livid? I am livid, Ben. It's it's almost midnight here, so I guess finally we can rise from the dead and go eat some people because we're zombies. Yeah. Zombie have, hiking those, guides. That's what you want to hear, Mario. Those birds better catch those zombies. You better tie a big knot around that bird's neck so it doesn't swallow that zombie. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so so basically when the challenge is done, you know, Jeff also says, like, wow, that's a pretty piss-poor performance. And you can tell that Jeff sort of knows something's up. But... um. They get back and like, yeah, when they get back to camp after Jean, who has lost the challenge, like James is just like, what? You shouldn't have answered with Sudoku. You shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have done that. And, you know, basically they're just the girls are just over there just laughing over what they've done. Like they're literally cackling like Eric comes over and is like, what's up, guys? You know, like I'm supposed to yell at you. But like even Eric's not even like knowing their extent. They're basically like, yeah, we threw the challenge. And Eric's like, you what? I love of when PG says, Jeff asked me a question. What am I supposed to do? Ignore him? <laughs> and goes, like, yes! Yes! <laughs> yes! I still like how, is how you know, she says, like, well, it wasn't like a logic-based puzzle, and James just fires back, a lunch lady did the puzzle! <laughs> <laughs> oh, hot lunch lady! She's a very desirable hot lunch lady. I mean, she's got that ass, but still! <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, but what strikes me when I watch the scene is James doesn't realize they threw the challenge. He just thinks they're idiots. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he, was, but, he was in yeah. the zone, you know what I mean? Like, he's just he was just frantically trying to win, you know? So he was just in it. Y'all can play high school all you want. Yeah, so, uh, so they still don't know if they're marching off to tribal council. You know, Jamie's still got that smug little grin on her face. PG still thinks it's funny, and... It's funny on the funny 115 that I took all my anger out on Jamie, but PG's kind of right there with her. I'm not sure why I just focused on Jamie, but Jamie is the one who really infuriates me when I watch the scene, how smug she is about the thing. When It wasn't even her idea in the first place. It was PG that kind of came up with it. Maybe it's because Jamie does eventually go in the next couple of episodes because it is such a clean rise and fall arc. You can attribute it more to Jamie, whereas like PG's going to stick around for a bunch more episodes, and that's, you know, after... Jamie's blind side is when the whole P-Jesus moniker comes in and she becomes a huge underdog and, and big favorite for this season. But right now, she is definitely not in that realm. And it's also, it's also pretty sad to like watch you know, Aaron and James. I think they wanted them to target each other, but they absolutely refused to do so. I mean, they, they eventually go after Aaron because I think they say that he has more connections on the other tribe, whereas James is more of a loner and really doesn't. But like they say, like, okay, James, you know, basically shit talk Aaron for us. And James says, no. I think I should go home over over Aaron at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a rough scene to watch, especially if you like James. I mean, again, he's my favorite character. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. But again, it, I, I can justify it by saying it leads to such a fantastic downfall of Jamie in a couple episodes. So it's it has a point. Like, I appreciate this episode, but I remember at the time watching it live, just hating this episode. It drove me bonkers. Well, yeah, because James comes out on the short end of the stick. But we get to Tribal Council, and Jeff basically, point blank, he's just like, yeah, you guys sue that challenge, right? And is it PG that says yes, or is it Jamie? I forget. Jamie. Jamie's the one and that Jamie's just like, yes, sir, we did. And, I, you know, first of all, it's like, oh, don't don't say it. Like, I know we all know it, but, like, you still have to, like, you have to play coy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even though it's dim, like, you still have to basically be like, ah, come on. We, 
we're tried. We, we just, you know, maybe we didn't try our hardest, but I mean, we still want to win. And you, know, you could say other things other than, you know, just flat out lying. But like, you can't just say, yes, we threw it. I mean, she says, yes, we threw it. And it's just like, now, okay, they're going to vote out Aaron. But, you know, James was already thinking they were idiots. But now you've literally pissed off James. And I mean, James just makes arguments like, why would you do that? And, you know, PG spells it out. She's just like, look, you know, she talks about the numbers going into the merge, right? It's like, it 100% makes number sense, but James is like, it doesn't make sense. And it's like, James, it does make sense. It's just you're on the receiving end of all of this, yeah. and it's, it's, it doesn't work for you. So I can understand why James is pissed and upset because he's a competitor, and also he's being completely dicked over in this whole thing. So I get his anger, but I mean, he's just in disbelief. But all of us at home, we're all fans of James. We're all watching this, and we're like, all pro James. So like, we're all at the same time going like, God, what are you guys doing to James? Yeah. And his Panama Jack hat. Not so much about Aaron. I noticed there wasn't a lot of outrage about Aaron. Uh, Whatever. But I would say, yeah, the difference, like you just said, is that it's really different in the way that PG and Jamie describe it, that PG, when they ask her, did you throw it? And she'll say, well, yeah, because strategically it's the best move. It makes sense. Like she tries to explain it logically. And Jamie's more like, yep, we did. It was awesome. Like, that's the difference to me, the way they kind of handle it there. Yeah. And so with that, we lose beloved Aaron, the surfing instructor. Was that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of how this stacks up in terms of like, quote unquote, unfair boots, I'm just going to compare it to two other people. How does Aaron's boots stack up to Michelle from Fiji and Jenny from Cook Islands, in your opinion? I've already wiped most of Cook Islands from my mind, so I don't remember that one. Well, the Michelle one from Fiji is just bullshit. I don't see how anybody could argue that's not just a bullshit. Jenny was the the bottle one, right? Was that Je- the, Jenny was oh, the, the bottle, oh yeah. oh you're all you're here you're, you happen to be here at tribal council now do, go now vote someone else out again. Yeah, we have to vote out white people, or we can't. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I remember this. Okay. Um. Yeah, the Jenny one. I could see why that one happened. That one happened because the producers were panicking and they kind of had to mix some stuff up. The Michelle one makes no sense. There's no point for that one. But I would also argue she wasn't really one of the power players at that point. So I don't know if it really affected the season that much. Aaron, you could argue, most definitely was one of the power players at the season. I mean, admittedly, he was probably going to take a downfall from uh, Todd at some point. But I think he would have been around for quite a while had this twist not happened. And I would also throw Silas's twist in there. That's another one I always throw in there that I think was completely unfair. Just for no reason that there'd no, it never been a twist before. How was he to expect that was coming? I think they're all BS. Uh, the most BS one is either this Aaron one or the Michelle one. And I would argue this is the more BS one just because I think Aaron had a very good chance to get very far in the game. I, I wonder if if they had gotten to episode five with uh, even numbers on six on six, if they would have, if they had a plan to do this with you kidnap, you steal through the, you know, the three strongest from each tribe. And then that way, five members and mix things up. But um, it would have been, uh, I think, a little bit better in that sense because you'd be having two tribes of of three and three, three and three. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I can see that. Well, it's interesting because we look at modern Survivor nowadays and when, you know, with these three tribe seasons, they usually go down to two tribes and switch things up. And in that case, they they do random draw. They don't give a shit what the makeup may be. If it's three versus three or four and two and one, um, and I feel like if we take that mentality and apply it here, they could have very easily done three and three, even if it was seven versus five, because you could just say, oh, yeah, one trip has the power on one, one trip has the power on the other, you know? But I feel like at this point, the producers were, this is 
is a rare opportunity where I feel like the producers are trying something out and I feel like it massively fails. Though, it's really going to set things up very interestingly because the next episode we're going to have a failed throw of a challenge and James getting two idols, which definitely sets up the entire post-merge. What do you think, Jay? I'm curious what you say about which one of the twists screwed the player the hardest. I don't know. I think it's hard for me to compare. I mean, I think that, like you said, Silas gets screwed because, you know, Silas had a poor attitude towards all the losing members because he's just like, well, we won. We won the power struggle and you lost. And he didn't know that a swap was coming. I mean, you know, and Michelle's is just nonsensical. Jenny's is non, And this one is kind of a BS move. But I don't know. To me, it's like Survivor's never fair. Like, even in other seasons, there's just unfair things that go about it. And as you said, Mike, sometimes, you know, there are some times where they even do the quote-unquote random uh, tribe swap where they, you know, smash eggs on each other of different colors and all that sort of stuff. And it's just, you know, some tribes just come out better than others, you know, or more lopsided than others. It's just sort of how it goes. Yeah. What about what about the tribe shuffle in Survivor All Stars where everyone but Amber switched? You know what I mean? Like it's or stayed the same. Sorry, and only Amber switched. Like it's just you know it's all it's all kind of bullcrap. But that's that's the name of the game, and that's why you know I I sort of get upset. Like I Survivor's a game, and I and I enjoy the game. I enjoy the television product, and that's what has kept me going for all these sorts of years. But you know I love it when people are like I like Survivor because it's a pure game of so, and it's like it's not a pure game. It's <laughs> unfair it is unbelievably unfair because of the things that they do in these games yeah and the way i can kind of live with this twist even though i still think it sucks is that it sets up two fantastic storylines one of them being james and one of them being jamie Mm -hmm. so i can kind of forgive it because it makes the tv show better i mean this was a fantastic season probably because of this episode. what about the outcast twist in pearl islands that's exactly where I was going with yeah. that argument. The Outcast would, makes Pearl Island better, too. So, whatever. Yeah, I, I, this is definitely... I mean, I wouldn't say the first four episodes are bad. I think they're just a little, albeit slow, because they are going back to very centric on camp life and interpersonal relations. They're going back opposed, in time, Mike! Exactly. <laughs> as, opposed, as opposed to, you know, the strategy, that the big strategy that we get in, in previous seasons. But this is really the inciting incident. This is the cow that kicks over the lantern that starts the Great Chicago Fire, in a way. Because... After this, I feel like a line in the sand is drawn. Once they go and they see that Aaron's gone, Fei Long says, okay, okay, we, we thought we were going to work with you guys, but now it's all-out war, and this is what we're going to do. Some would say it's the art of war. And with that, we've come full circle. We finished five episodes of Survivor China, and just before we sign off here, I just want to say, like I said, I have a grievance list from my friend Adam Kolodny, who hates Survivor China. And just some of the, I just want to go through some of the grievances he has, why he thinks this is a bad season. And I happen to agree with him on certain levels. I just don't think it it affects the season. And one of the things he says is that he hates the location. Like they're in China. It's a fantastic locale. There's so many things they could do. Instead, they're stuck in like a little muddy swamp where basically they can't do anything. And I happen to agree with him. I do think they could have used the locations better for the camp. But at the same time, they use the locations for the challenges so well. They do all sorts of cool stuff. They go to temples and all sorts of things. And they integrate the culture so well into camp life with the fishermen coming there and things like that. That I don't think that's that big a hit. Yeah, they could have done better with the camp. It's not particularly pretty. But I don't think that's really a big flaw of the season. Let's see. What else did he say? He said this twist is the worst twist in Survivor history. He hates it. 
I agree with him, but like I just said, it leads to two fantastic storylines, which are among the better storylines of any Survivor season. So I can live with the twist because it leads to something else. Um, he said there's a lot of high school bickering, just little kid people. Uh, let me see if, he, if I can find his exact words here. What did Aaron or what did Adam write here? He wrote <clears throat> high school bickering. Where it is? China is a high school soak season, complete with constant whining and mocking and complaining about each other. A lot of this has to do with its young, inexperienced cast. Survivor is often at its best when people of all ages come together. Too many young people with very little substance makes this season bland and uneventful. And this is when I happen to disagree with him vehemently, because mm-hmm. I think this is a fantastic cast, and I think it's very diverse with different people from different cultures and different you know areas of the country. So I, where I, I see there's a lot of bickering in the season, people mocking each other. I think he's mostly just talking about Courtney and Todd, who, again, are some of the more entertaining narrators of this era, so I don't really see that as a downside. So that's one that's one of the flaws that he points out that I just happen to disagree with. Well, also, like, we just talked about the first five episodes. The main people that are raising arguments are who? Chicken, Dave, Jean Robert. These are all older contestants comparatively, so I think that logic is completely flawed. Yeah, yeah. It, you're crazy with this casting, because even, you know, Adam breaks down all of the characters and he says like dave yawn dave yawn what yeah okay well i imagine we will have a lot of fun debunking adam's uh list here and again i i I told adam i'd be very fair with him like i said he's the only person i know that hates china and i want to give some you know some logical thought to these arguments against china because i don't want to just sit here and us to say this is a great season it's flawless so i wanted to give you know some uh equal airtime to people who think that it has flaws. So I'll be going through his list and we'll kind of be bringing them up from time to time. Those are just the three that I have on uh, at this point and what we thought of them. So do you guys have any other thoughts about the first five episodes? No, I think, I mean, I think we pause at an interesting moment because it really is the beginning of this Jamie and James storyline. And I think the, again, the action that's going to happen over the next few episodes is really just going to set up, this post merge and it gets it gets pretty insane. So I'm excited to revisit those episodes with you guys. But this this is I think what, what this is sort of the end of the beginning section of Survivor China. You know, as Mike has just said, we're getting into sort of the next little bit here. Like you know, this the throw and and the and the boot of Aaron is really going to catapult the next logical bit of action. And so we're sort of done with the establishing stuff. But the establishing stuff gave us. You know, Ashley, which was a, a memorable sort of character for a second boot. It gave us Dave. Dave's now gone. You know, we've had a lot of really interesting stuff at the beginning, and that was the beginning. You know, there, there's a lot of seasons, even like Survivor Australia that we talk about, where like the first six episodes of Survivor Australia are like some of the best, like could be the first best six episodes ever. But the the back half of that season does trail off a bit, you know? And as Mike said, the the beginning of Survivor China, it's not the most fast pace of seasons, but the episodes are still very good, very character rich. And if you're going to say that this is the weakest part of the season, that's a pretty good weak part of the season to have because it's actually quite strong. And Paul has nothing to add. More Amanda, more Amanda, more Amanda. <laughs> we'll get plenty of Amanda in the next couple episodes, Paul. And, Too you bad know this will fact- be the only season we can talk about her. I know. If only she comes back inexplicably two more times in the next five seasons. Well, we have the ability to travel back in time. We can travel forward in time and make sure that happens, right? (laughs) Yes. Thank God we're going to make Amanda happen. (laughs) 
All right. So I think that's it. Uh, we've gone through the first uh, five episodes of China. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed this. Uh, if you guys have any comments, questions, if you really hate some of our jokes and want to complain about them, you can uh, write us at survivorhistorians at gmail.com. We all have access to that mailbox, so we read all your comments. Uh, we've getting uh, singles emails lately. <laughs> I was going to say hundreds of emails, but whatever the, whatever the equivalent of one or two emails is to hundreds. So we could use some more emails, especially if you want to write to Jay and tell him your favorite, because Jay always likes that. Um, so I think that's it. Uh, once again, for the Survivor Historians, as always, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher. I'm Mike Bloom. I'm Paul Oslison. And we are the bad boys of podcasting. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you for part two in a couple weeks. Thanks again. Bye. Can't stand it. Losing our two strongest warriors. I thought you were our strongest warrior. Yeah, you John Rose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. China, the Chinese chicken. You have a drumstick and your brain stops sticking. Watching X Files with no lights on, with dollar on. I hope the smoking man's in this one, like Harrison Ford. I'm getting frantic, like Stingham Tentric, like Snickers guaranteed to satisfy. Like Kurosawa, I make mad films. Okay, I don't make films, but if I did, they'd have a samurai. Gonna get a set of better clubs, gonna find the kind with tiny nubs, just so my arms aren't always flying off the backswing. Gonna get into my sailor moon, cause the cartoonist got the boom anime babes to make me think the wrong thing. How can I help it if I think you're funny when you're mad? Trying hard not to smile, though I feel bad. I'm the kind of guy who laughs at a funeral Can't understand what I mean, you soon will I have a tendency to wear my mind on my sleeve I have a history of losing my shirt It's been...